Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches His Dark Materials Series 2, Episode 1, The Magpie City, featuring a very special guest, Lo the Lynx. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. But yes, as Chloe said, today we have crossed worlds for Series 2 slash Season 2 of His Dark Materials and have another, another one of your hosts. <laughs> Hi, Lo. Hi. It's so good to talk to you. I'm super excited about this. I'm Lo, or Lo if you're talking English. You can find me on WordPress sometimes when I have the energy and time. And that's lowthelinks.wordpress.com, where I write about historic materials, A Song of Ice and Fire, and other random stuff from a sort of intersectional feminist perspective. And I'm also on Twitter at load the links and i sometimes write relevant stuff there and i but i mostly post pictures about my cat <laughs> uh, who is another 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 one of your hosts yes, it's true. and also a lot of politics so be warned yes and you've written so much on his dark materials and i've enjoyed a lot of the pieces a lot of nordic influences if you've listened to any of our episodes, you've heard us talk about our friend Lo, who's written about blah, blah, blah. These things include Nordic influences and in his dark materials, power relations, Scandinavian folklore, the witches, dangerous women, colonialism. Lo has written pretty much everything now. Lo writes so I don't have to, and it's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yes. That's what I think. I just think... Lowe's going to write that essay, so we'll, yes. be, we'll be fine. And so we thought, how better to kick off Series 2 than to bring Lowe on? Yes. Well, before we jump into the episode, feel free to tell us about your current projects and what you're working on. I know you've recently been teaming up with people and writing stuff, so anything fun we should know about? Well, I think by the time this is up, an video essay discussion thingy I did with our friend Amy Blackfire should be up as well. And we talked about colonialism and orientalism in historic materials. Because, like you said, I've written an essay about colonialism. And she's also written an essay about orientalism in historic materials that I got a sneak preview of because we were discussing this. Uh, and that's super interesting. So you should all go read that and listen to our discussion. We had a lot of fun talking about some real life things and some opinions we have on how the world is not great, not our world, nor Lyra's world. So yeah, that should be up. And then we're also doing, me and Amy, a collaboration essay in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire about Lysaun Omar, inspired by your episode on Liz, because I was listening to that and, was, and I was like, oh my God, why have I not written about this guy? And why <laughs> have I not talked with Amy about this guy? So yeah, that's coming up. And uh, I've also said previously on Twitter, you can probably find the receipts of this, that when Eliana finishes The Secret Commonwealth, I'm making yeah, my way. I will write an essay about sort of unsafe spaces and moving through 
faces as a marginalized person in society about his dark materials and specifically the secret commonwealth. Um, Lowe's like, do not spoil the book for Eliana. Cannot do it. But at the same time, Lowe's like, I so want to spoil the book for Eliana. So this is hinging on me? Finishing? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Oh, I didn't realize there was so much uh, on my shoulders. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's fine because I haven't even started. Oh, good. I just have like an outline in my head and know which theories I'm gonna use. But I was like, it's gonna okay. take a while before Eliana finishes, so I don't have to start it yet. <laughs> I'm making progress, but there's as as we were discussing prior to recording this episode, there's such just some infuriating stuff that makes me like have to take breaks every now and then. So, mm-hmm. <sighs> but some really good stuff, which is why I keep coming back. Anyways, yes. Well, thank you again, Lo, and we will move into the quick little housekeeping notes we have, speaking of, because this episode is coming to you. Well, as we've discussed in some of our previous uh, online chatter, we now know that America is not getting this episode at the same time as the UK. Lo, unfortunately, is also a part of this crew that does not get the episode in quite time. So our episodes, to be fair to all crowds from UK and US, will be released on Mondays. Uh, You will see a review for Series 2, Episode 1 right now on Monday when this is released. And next Monday, you'll probably be listening to us talk about Series 2, Episode 2. So keep that in mind. And the last week of the month, you can also catch LaBelle Sauvage episodes if you're reading any of the other Pullman published works or have read. And that is in the Book of Dust. It's the very first Book of Dust from Philip Pullman. And so with this episode, though, that means what you can anticipate for the spoiler scope, seeing as how they're playing a little with the chronology in the show, and I think to good effect, this episode is going to contain spoilers from the entire main trilogy. That means Northern Light slash The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass, including some of the supplementary material, the smaller supplementary material, such as the Lantern Slides, which offer insight into some of the fragmented notes from Pullman's brain that were published in the later volumes of the books, but I think originally in uh, the short story Lyra's Oxford, but was eventually distributed amongst the, the later editions of the books. So we will be discussing material from the entire book series. Yes, and afterwards, if you have not listened to our episodes before, we read the series with a non-spoiler lens, and at the end of the episode, we do have what we call a discussion, uh, or a dusty discussion. It really just, the, the levels of dust vary, right? We measure them with our alethiometers, and we figure it out. But the dusty discussions at the end do spoil the books of dust, I think today we're only having a dusty discussion, which will spoil all published Pullman works in the Lyra universe, in the His Dark Materials worlds, right? So look forward to that. If you have not read any of the outer works, the Books of Dust, etc., you may want to tune out. Eliana herself will not be listening because she's not quite there yet. But she is getting somewhere. If you've been keeping along with Eliana's journey as she journeys with Lyra, with Pan, in the Secret Commonwealth. Eliana is actually Malcolm getting Polstead. Yeah, with Malcolm Polstead. But Eliana has been getting in there, and we, over at our Discord, uh, we have a Discord server for patrons in the $10 and up tier, where we're doing a read-through on the Secret Commonwealth, because this book is loaded, and I don't remember half of it, is what I'm learning as I reread it. So we just started chapters 1 through 5, 
please come on down to our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon and get in on that Discord action and chat with us because we have some some spicy takes, a lot of Melk and Polstead discussion. So maybe Eliana will finish the book is all I'm saying. Maybe. Maybe. But until then, we have this show with some new material, but old material. Something both new and old for all of us who have read the books. And so to start us off, let, let's talk about it. You know, um, it, here we are, a new season, and there's a lot that I think has been done really well. But everyone, what is your favorite part of the episode? Okay, so I had a hard time choosing. I was asked this question beforehand, and I was like, I can't do this. How do I choose? But I'm going to go with Omelette Part 2, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But also, <laughs> like as a bonus part that I will have to choose anyway, uh, because the choosing has always been hard. Um, so I'm going to also have to choose the Red Panda scene, because floof. Yes, oh, that one was yeah. so... Uh, they're doing great with the demons, I think, this season, but yes. The Red Panda was a treat. Um, I have to agree with you. I think just all the omelette, ev- everything omelette related in this episode was great. For me, like, the standout, though, is Lyra just... I, like, rewinded it the first time I saw it. I was like, wait, I gotta see that again. Her poking the omelette and being like, what is this? <laughs> and I was just like, wait, hold on. Iconic. Related, I also just love, because also, again, I can't just pick one. Uh, Lyra saying that she doesn't need a stand-up shower in that entire exchange. <laughs> when she, like, slowly inches her head into the shirt. I'm doing it right now if I sound muffled. When when she just puts her face in the shirt and just shares this dark look at Pan, it's like, oh yeah, Pan is you. Pan knows what you smell like, Lyra. <laughs> but then she's just like, eh, eh. I guess my favorite part, I'm not choosing a deep part. I like that we're not choosing a deep part because we have the next 8 million hours together to discuss the the deep, the deepness of this episode. But I love when she and Will, when Will and her get married in this episode, I mean, when they decide they're married and she's like, "Uh, no, I'm staying here. And he's all, there's every, everything is abandoned. You can go stay anywhere else. Why do you have to stay with me? And she goes upstairs, looks at the beds and she chooses the smaller bed. And she's like, I want that bed, the smaller one. And he's like, that's, you, you really are making me, kicking me out of my bed. And he goes downstairs. He's like, yeah, whatever. And she just looks at the bed, stares at it for a while. And she gives this very matter of fact shrug and goes, hmm, hmm. And then she just goes like and gets in the bed with Pan. And she's like, hmm. And it's just that matter of fact, hmm, is probably this season's ain't. Like when, when Daphne in series one said ain't for the first time. I was like, it's Lyra. That's Lyra. That's our Lyra. But when she did the hmm in this episode, I was like, yeah, that's Lyra. <laughs> yeah. I think those, those character moments, Daphne's just done really well, and they've done a great job of mm-hmm. writing it in in this episode. I think they probably heard people wanted that more. And uh, they're just so great. They have great chemistry. Yeah. it's great. But I just love, I don't know, I love those moments. Yeah. Well, previously on His Dark Materials, the episode opens up, and we have a little bit of a backstory from series one. So if you miss out on series one, this will be like our lightning rounds that we do in our Song of Ice and Fire podcast series. Uh, And I guess we'll jump right in. 
The witches hear immortal whispers of those who pass between the worlds. Kaiza narrates and illustrates Lyra and Will's destiny, right? We get the, the repetition from series one. Asriel is with his photograms, and he's presenting on the Grumman expedition. Yes, and then we have Mrs. Coulter and Lyra's journey, which is highlighted, and the Asriel and Coulter parentage reveal. And Lee Scoresby is highlighted with Cliff Goss and his girlfriend, Serafina Pekela. Yep, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well understands. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter and Boreal's involvement in Will and Jopari's lives and the search for the knife for the Magisterium. And then we also have Elaine and Will's relationship highlighted. Yes, and Lyra, Asriel, Roger, Thorold, and the tragic end of season one is the next part that we see with this beautiful glimpse at the city in the sky. And then we get Roger's demise and all our hearts break again. <laughs> and then also some super hot Coulter and Asriel goodbye. Mm, that monkey petting the leopard. <laughs> That's what I'm into. Mm. Are you not into this? Is this not? <laughs> then we have Will and Lyra's path into Chittagaze. And, you know, as as soon as uh, this whole, like, previously on Historic Material stuff ended, my partner was like, oh my god, I forgot how devastating the end was. It was just like, oh my god, that was horrible. What happened to Roger? And we had a whole discussion about it. <laughs> I'm glad. You should keep... His dark materials in the family. I think keeping it as a family discussion. It is devastating. That was awful. And I, uh, if you've listened, you know a favorite of mine is that Azra Coulter goodbye. I I really like that scene. And they did it really well. Like the swoon. It's the swoon of the monkey. The mean, awful, malicious monkey that's always nasty and psychotic. But then you get that vulnerability and all of a sudden the monkey just swoons into Stelmaria. And I just think they did that really well. Yeah, uh, And, you know, we're going to talk about it in the episode, but demons, as Alihana mentioned, they really made it a significant part of this episode to show the demons every five seconds doing things, being involved, being near their people, uh, their humans. And I thought that was great. And I'm excited to see what else we get of that this season, because eventually it won't be the same. Just kidding. Yeah. Did they get a bigger mm-hmm. budget this season? That yeah. might be oh, why. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Good. I'm sure. Good. I'm sure. The show yeah, is I mean, freaking amazing. <laughs> there was a lot of Lyra and Pan moments, and mm-hmm. I, I I think I made some notes about that. For instance, like the scene that Chloe mentioned when they're like snuggling up on the bed, and I'm like, oh, they're so oh, close I love to that. each other. That's so sweet. Yeah. It, it, the way that they portrayed that was really nice. And of course, you know, that's how this episode kind of opens up, right? It opens up on Lyra and Pan together with that light in the sky in the background. And together, Lyra and Pan walk into a new world. They're hiding for shelter in a cave and talking about missing Roger when they come upon the city in the sky. Yeah, at the very top, uh, it it opens with Lyra and Pan, right? But you get this echo, and it's Roger calling Lyra's name, but it's just a dream. And opening with that, I was howling. I was hooting. I was hollering. I was like, that's how we're going to end the season. Like, they pretty much just guaranteed we're going to end the season with Roger calling Lyra's name and probably Lyra Mm -hmm. in a cave. Yeah. it's uh... That's the last scene. That's the last scene. Boom. 
they kind of had that in the in the trailers, one of the trailers where it, he's yelling, and then I was like, oh my god, why would they just do this to us? But I, I'm glad mm-hmm. that the way that they've been carrying over the pain of losing Roger for Lyra's character, and we talked about this during the episodes covering the trailers, uh, which we're going to refer to quite a few times because a lot of the they've taken a lot of scenes from this first episode and put them in those trailers, but uh, Lyra wandering the forest before coming upon the city in the sky. We all know its name, but we'll get there. Whatever. Reminds me of the first few stanzas of Dante's Inferno, which, as we know, was a large influence on Pullman in creating his dark materials. And um, I encourage you all to reread it, because last time I read it aloud, and I don't think everyone wants to relive that moment. So it's got a lot of imagery of finding oneself in that shadowed forest and being partway through a journey and feeling very wearied in soul and body the way that Lyra is right now. Yeah, she is very, very weary. It was sad. She, uh, as we go through this, she seems no hope, bummed. So Will is her hope. Will is going to be the the reappearance of hope in this arc. But first we get this shot of witches and they're flying through the sky with zeppelins that seem to kind of be flying as well toward light bursting from a hill, which we know is the window into the other world. Uh, And we get a voiceover. And this is a very significant voiceover, because if you were watching the show, you did not, unless you follow production and all that stuff, uh, you probably did not know who this was just off the top of your head or who it was supposed to be. But a woman's voice is speaking, discussing what Asriel has done, explaining the witch's prophecy and who it's about, about Lyra. And at the very end of the episode in the credits, we get kind of a thing of witch voices and angels and demons this is Zephania's actress, the rebel leader of the Angel Army who allies with Asriel. This is Sophie Okonedo, and if you are a big Doctor Who fan, like... Yes. Oh, and Pandorica opens. She played Queen Elizabeth X, or Liz X. Uh, she was in Secret Life of Bees as Mae Boatwright, Stormbreaker, Skin, Neon Flux. She's been on Broadway, National Theater. She's a singer, a narrator, and she's been credited since the early 90s in many, many films and shows. And she's just like a powerhouse. She's a great name to be playing Zephania. So where series one, we start with Kaiza narrating the prophecy. Zephania narrates this time, and she's likely to be the closing in this season, possibly have a scene in the end of the season, but also uh, she's the close on Will and Lyra's relationship, right? She drops the figurative window bomb. And if you listen to her voice in the narration in the beginning, they've done something really cool. They've layered it. And there's two, there's two to four layers of her voice. There's two layers that are your left and right that seem really solid. And then you have at least one to two layers below that are her voice but a little more sinister and almost layered with a distortion on it and it makes her sound like this otherworldly like i am an angel from a place i am the rebel leader voice and it's insane like listen to it get your ear up to your speaker and listen to it again because i did this like four times today (laughs) i had to get my ear real up to my computer but it's really cool sounding they did an awesome job there it's a cool technical touch interesting yeah i I kind of assume that we'll meet I say Zephania. Um, of course you do. Of course I do. Uh, Zephania, <laughs> when uh, Ruta Scotty meets the angels, and then like, you know, Zephania will like speak, and will be like, "Wow, it's the narrator there, right there." So I assume uh, that's how it's gonna like be like, "Wow, like a reveal, kinda," yeah. but which won't be and too long for I now. I wouldn't be surprised then because we might get it with Baruch and Balthamo scene as well mm. because they are cast in the series. 
Yes, that's true. They're at the end and they're like, good fucking luck, kid. <laughs> they, they were down there, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry about your friend. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh, that was Lyra? Shit! <sighs> Man, okay, well, the Magisterium is the next scene. We get Magisterium, finally. They're here. It's fast. It's It's the beginning of the episode and we're already getting screwed over by the Magisterium, but we see the Magisterium in a submarine, doing some work. Yeah, and something I noticed right away when I was watching the episode the first time, both on the the submarines and the airships, there's like a lot of focus on the Magisterium logo of the cross. And when I first saw it, I was immediately like, oh, that looks like Nazi airships or like planes and shit from World War Two. That symbol really reminded me of the Luftwaffe symbol, I think it's pronounced like that. I don't know German. But yeah, so I think when they they really focused on it, and I actually went back and looked through different episodes of season one of Airships, and I couldn't catch the same focus on that symbol uh, in those episodes. So I really thought that that must have been on purpose, that they really focused on the symbol, on this sort of authoritarian, Christian, white supremacy thing. (laughs) They're really pushing it. Yeah, and also, yeah. like, the soldiers with their badges later in the scene for the Venisterium, and, like, the symbol is everywhere, and it looks really like Nazi imagery. I think it's really good that they're choosing to... Not good. It's good that they're choosing to distinguish on a metal level that, and I think that's another big thing they have to focus on, putting a symbol on it, because there's going to be a lot of airship fighting going on as we get through. I mean, if they're going to show the war... How are you going to illustrate this war and this giant freaking kingdom in the air and airships and understanding who's who? I, I know they can. I'm not saying they're incapable, but I think this is good. This is going to provide mm-hmm. that foundation towards season three or series three. Sorry. Uh, and I also think now that you mentioned it, like it's it's great when you look at that aerial of the Magisterium. It, it looked a little more detailed this time. Uh, it, it looks like maybe it's the foliage that's encroaching more or something. There was more greenery but it looks just that symbol from an aerial and it does very much so look like that now that i've pulled the image up it's a little blatant a little on the nose which a lot of stuff for the magisterium is i think this season so good 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 it's Mm. good it's going great yeah it is interesting um because as far as i know in our world religious organizations don't usually just brand things by putting a cross on it so i think it's really telling that the way that they're evoking that through um, the connections that Lo was saying. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Coulter and the monkey are also on the ship. They're reading formulas. And Mrs. Coulter looks at some photos of Lyra, including a little baby one. <laughs> they're precious. That was a precious photo. It was so precious. And even the, the, the first couple, the first baby picture, like the smallest, is very cute. And then you even have one where she looks a little younger than when we meet her it looks more like maybe she's 10 11 uh and then one from current lyra and it absolutely this is so much set up for the bomb next season for coulter right and even for the end of the season with her and lyra her looking through these pictures and deciding you know what is the worth like what is what am i choosing what is my end goal and i think coulter there's something interesting that if you don't know what's going to happen which we know what's going to happen but if you don't know they're really sending you in the other direction right now you know like they're showing Coulter as this mean like stiletto wearing like bitch who's going to kill some people but if you you know 
you see what happens at the end that she becomes this woman who, you know, bets and ends up going for her daughter finally instead in the psycho toxic manner that she does. And right now, if I didn't know what happened, I would probably be like, oh, fuck that lady. Oh, man. Oh, man. You know, I would have no clue. I mean, she still is a mean stiletto bitch who kills people. She just kills an aspect of God. She just kills different. She just kills different things. Yeah, she's my mean stiletto bitch, though, and that's what matters. Yeah, and I thought the photos were really interesting because, like you mentioned about in the lantern slides that we're going to talk a bit about here, in one of the lantern slides, we get that Astriel sort of insisted that photos would be taken of Lyra each year and someone had to, like, cut her and comb her hair and wash her and trap her long enough to take a photo. And then Asriel would uh, uh, get these photos. So I think the fact that he has apparently kept them in this journal where, with all his formers is like one of the small instances of him not being a total asshole. That's a great point. Yeah. And it's absolutely that. And I forgot the par- all the fucking grueling things that they had to go through in order to get Lyra to just take this photograph. And you can see it in her expression in those photos. She doesn't look happy. She's just like... <sighs> she's like deadpan in all of them. <sighs> she looks like someone went and wrestled her to take a photo. I also want to talk a little bit about that notebook because this is a, a redemption arc for our podcast here right now. Um... <laughs> We saw this scene of the notebooks in the trailers and had actually discussed some of the formulas and what's written in them more in depth in um, in one of those trailer episodes. I want to say it's from the one that was released on October 15th or so. And yes, the formulas in the notebook, a lot of these actually are from real physics, real world physics, and represent um, things in it. And I recruited some people who actually do know physics from the <laughs> Aswolf mod team. Not me. And they helped me decipher some of these, such as the elect- uh, that a lot of these formulas are probably related to electrodynamics or unborrowed dynamics, as we'll talk about in this episode. E meaning electric field. So maybe that should have been an A. I don't know. Or maybe E means something else then. Uh, B is magnetic field. R would be radius. Our friend Fat Baldo suggests it could be about deriving field strength, which would make sense in the context, again, of what we're seeing on this page and what we know about the Ruzikov field and all those things. Uh, and also, to again, redemption arc, because we would like to correct ourselves from the trailer and thinking, what are these formulas? What the, the large one there towards the bottom was just like technical ease to like make it look technical, but not real. But mm-hmm. in fact... As our friend Zionius pointed out after further research, but it was after we had finished recording the episode, it came in just a bit too late. And I was like, <laughs> God damn it. Uh, but anyways, is actually an equation used for focusing a lens. There are a couple things I want to talk about with this because that's interesting. Thinking about it deeper, I thought after we heard this from Zionius, I thought that uh, the lens could be obviously the camera, right? Taking the pictures of the, the dust and doing the photograms, but it could also refer to a lens later that is used to see dust, mm. as in the amber spyglass. I was like, huh. So that's an idea. But I would also argue about the E, not A, for the anbaric versus electronic, Eliana or Electro. This is tied in directly from Coulter's plot opening on the Zeppelin. The shot they show right before during the catch-up shows Thorold and Asriel's lair when Coulter comes there at the end of the season. So this implies that the books she took are from Asriel's lab, 
and the photos are as well. So these are his photos, like you were saying, from the lantern slides, Lo. But huge foreshadowing because she took them straight from there. Asriel was using those to research for Chirigatse and the city in the sky and other worlds. So he was probably also trying to make sense of what Electro means in the other worlds in comparison to Anbaro. Oh, that could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's my thought that he was, because he's trying to break into another world. So yeah. Or, or they were pulling things and put that in there yeah, so that people that. like me, who is like, tells their physics <laughs> friends, please tell me what this is. will be able to decipher it. <laughs> Okay, it could also just be that. Like, it could just be a pull. But yeah, I'm just trying to say devil's advocate or maybe, you know, uh, Metatron's advocate here that it could be good. It could be. It could also be electric field in that, like, it, they just put an E. You know how sometimes yeah. in math they'll, like, just pick a random fucking no. letter or symbol and <laughs> yeah. be like, this stands yeah. for this thing, like pi. You know, kind they're like, is- pi is this or you know what i mean they'll pick random letters and it could be in their world they just happen to pick e they're just making shit up half the time you know (laughs) i know they're not but feels like it all right (laughs) then lyra and pan again are crying in a cave sheltering from the rain they fight their way through the thick foliage to see the city and the sky but now it's a city in on the ground slash the water it's a wee hike away City in the sky. City in yeah, the sky. I was jamming to that about this. I'm thinking it right now. I'm like singing. I'm like, yeah. City in the sky. All right. Eliana, I'm going to say something I don't say often. You were right. Um, I'm going to expand on that thought now, now that I've gotten the hard part out. You know, you kind of just got to like get the hard stuff out first. Eliana was right. These are the, the shots from the trailer. In our trailer episodes, I just because I was like, what if? What if they're her in the cave at the end? And Eliana's like, no, she has her coat. This is her in the cave. This is her before she did God say, Chloe, no, stop. I don't so sound you like are that. right. That's your voice. But uh, <laughs> that's what you sound like to me. I don't know. No, it's not. It's not your voice. But I think, though, it's still purposeful because, again, we're opening with her in the cave, sheltering after we just had the Roger voice. So this is foreshadowing loves. XOXOXO. Gossip uh, squirrel. <laughs> gossip squirrel, gossip demon. Demons do spread gossip, but yes, I see. And also, the cave. Oh, cave foreshadowing. The Two cave foreshadows. Caves and caves, um, but yes. And a cave in the third book, if you really want to get technical. There's another cave. Mm, yes, true, true. I'm just saying, uh, you know, it's a podcast. They can all hear my voice. Um <laughs> <laughs> There's this scene in 30 Rock, uh, if you've ever watched 30 Rock, where Tracy Jordan turns to his friend, Dot Com, and Dot Com has said something. He goes, no one can hear you, Dot Com. And that is a common quote around our household right now. And that's how I feel about this moment. No one can hear you. Okay. (laughs) You're not real. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. I can hear you. I know your voice doesn't sound like that. (sighs) Well, I can't hear you over the new intro, which isn't that crazy, but it's still a banger. Just putting it out there, it is a huge banger. That song is, it's in my head, like, every day. I I have to listen to it at least once a day, because it's that good. It's that good. It actually is very good. Have you deciphered the the new lyrics in Latin yet? I have not, but... I haven't tried yet. Lo, have you, or have you heard anyone doing so yet? 
I haven't, uh, but I have been singing it. I was watching the episode with a friend last night, and we were obviously yamming along yeah. while listening to the intro. It's just like... It's so good. It's so good. Uh, like, right from when it st- starts with the little tinkling. Anyways. Um... <laughs> sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I got a little out of control there, but that's what happens. It takes you. You got to let the intro take you. Uh, I didn't even really, I haven't watched it with subtitles yet. And I always watch things with subtitles. And I didn't have the subtitles on, so I didn't even really, like, I didn't listen hard enough. So I'm going to wait. My next subtitle watch, I'm going to look and think. Mm. And I'll get back to you. I'll see what I think about it. I forgot it would probably be in the subtitles. I forgot that. Um. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I try to I try to cheat, you know, and find easier ways to see things like that. Sometimes no, I do it because still... I can't understand their accent. Oh, I don't have that issue. I'm unfortunately a very heavy Doctor Who fan, so mm. and that's not even hard. That uh, I've I mean, watched. I watched a lot of Broadchurch. I've watched Doctor Who. I've watched Skins. I've watched you know. Misfits. I've watched uh, Misfits. I've watched God. What else am I caring about these days? You know, uh, a lot of Bake Off. A lot of Bake Off. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, um, yeah. To talk about the intro before we launch into some of like the really great stuff that they've done and adaptations, I wanted to call it something that I'd never noticed in the intro, and this was still there in season one in terms of the entire aesthetic of it when it's opening, and turns out it might be a nod towards one of the publishings, the editions of the Amber Spyglass, uh, perhaps. Chloe has uh, supplemented a note, the Folio Society version of the Amber Spyglass, um, mm. which I only know now because of user Embnaz, uh embroidering that cover and sharing it on the His Dark Materials subreddit. And it was actually their first time embroidering, and it looks really good. I'm going to drop the link in the show description so that you can see it, but it looks a lot like the that dust, you know, mm. pulling up, pouring up into the sky. So check it out. Great job. It's Congrats, so Emdaz. It's really pretty, and they did a great job. I kind of wonder if they would embroider it for embroider something for me. I mean, hmm, maybe I will pay you. Will you make me this? This is it's beautiful and sad with the dust. It's just <sighs> real sad. It's really sad because the best part about this show right now is that Will's finally in it. But like that also means that we're closer to the end. You know what I mean? And I'm sad. So, sad. Yeah. Very sad. Beautiful job. I knit. I don't embroider. I'm jealous. So, I should learn. Teach me. Teach me. Empnaz. But the new stuff is really exciting. So, I don't want to overshadow the embroidery. But the new stuff is so exciting. Oh, my God. We get to see the subtle knife. Y'all. It was so good. It was so cool. The the flip and the zh- and it makes the knife sound and it yeah it was amazing and uh, it it's it just looked great. I was not expecting it to be so beautiful and the angel in it looks gorgeous. Uh, it, it's really cool because last season you saw the knife in her back and mm-hmm. it explodes into the actual metal alloy that is in the blade of the the separation and also with that with the knife so then now it's just the knife actually came out of her back and it flipped around and it had an angel and the description which i'm sure we're going to talk about this probably in the next episode or the episode after that it might be episode three i think we're getting a lot more of the tower in it but in the subtle knife we get the description of the subtle knife which is 
He saw the rosewood was inlaid with golden wires, forming a design he didn't recognize till he turned the knife around and saw an angel with wings folded. On the other side was a different angel with wings upraised. The wires stood out a little from the surface, giving a firm grip, and he picked it up. He felt that it was light in his hand and strong and beautifully balanced, and that the blade was not dull after all. We'll talk more about the beautiful swirl of colors that is in the blade, uh, but it looks amazing. I know this isn't, obviously, we're going to get some way better shots of it from the trailer, but I didn't actually expect the angel to be so visible in the hilt. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't. It's gorgeous. And we get the tower, right? We get the beautiful tower with it as well. Yeah, the that mirroring of shape. You know, I was noticing now, like, that Mobius strip kind of, like, formation of the many. It Now it looks like it's the many knives. I get it now. I get it. Um, you know, the, 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 the circly, spirally mm-hmm. thing. Um, so now we get to that sort of um, cleared up. But it also mirrors, again, that idea of many worlds. But perhaps even the wing-like formation. So it's doing a lot Mm. of different things there um, and that refraction. But I'm also feeling that the movement of those those spirally Mobius-like knives kind of feels a bit like the movement of what we're going to see are the specter's bodies in this show depiction. That billowing. Yeah, the shroom, 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 you know? I didn't even think of that. Okay, okay. And it all goes right into the tower, right? So that all transforms right into the Tour de Angeli, which looks amazing with beautiful stained glass and kind of guarded, flanked by angels. I'm out here trying to enhance right now to see if I can read the stained glass. I'm like, enhance, enhance, because uh, there's definitely something written on it, and I'm sure it's going to be some sort of Latin phrase. Uh, It's probably something from the books, and we'll be like, oh, it's the thing someone says in the books, and it's probably something that uh, Giacomo is going to say in his episode. Mr. Paradisi! Mr. Paradisi! We'll hear what he has to say. For sure. <laughs> yes, and the addition of more stairs, of course, in the intro, which not only plays up that MC Escher uh, sort of vibe that we've discussed in some of the trailer episodes, and we'll come back to again, but also mirrors, of course, the architecture of Chittagaze itself. And speaking of Chittagaze, the worlds, the different little like horizontal worlds now ends on Chittagaze. <laughs> yeah, and Okay, last season, all I did was, again, enhance looking for Mulefa. But, <laughs> like, that was me the whole time. Like, Mulefa? Mulefa? Am I going to see a tiny Mulefa anywhere? So I did that again. Still no Mulefa. That's okay. That's okay. I know. I'll be patient. I keep looking. I keep hoping. But no. Yeah, there were more, like, science things, too. Like, there's one part of the intro where you see this corridor that I think looks sort of like oh. a hospital or a scientific lab or something. And then that turns into some like v- wiring or something. And my first thought was that this was a cave, like Mary Malone's cave, because of the like laboratory feel transitioning into it. But then I listened to the Dark Materials podcast episode breakdown. Uh, and they said that they thought it would be the bomb and that we will get more, uh. like, sort of teasing of the bomb throughout the season. Yeah, That's you actually smart. and I were messaging right when the episode came out. And I was like, oh, I thought it was the bomb. I, I didn't even think that was the cave, but that makes sense that it would look like the cave. But... I think that's probably what the Magisterium plot will be in the background after Coulter is kind of separated, severed from them at some point. I'm guessing that they'll be making the bomb and we'll hear about it at one point. So I I like that it could have a dual purpose. 
Interesting. Well, I think that you two are the bomb. Um, Aww. 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 <laughs> Aww. Um, Gosh. As you all know, I haven't listened to the Dark Materials episode breakdown yet. Uh, I wanted to go into this, you know, not not yet mm-hmm. dusty. Not completely dusty. You know, like, check out the Dark Materials uh, podcast, though, fellow Shroffies, the term coined by the folks over at Chittagase in the online forum, not in the Actually. book series. <laughs> People in our world. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, the cave, I-, I thought it was the cave. I didn't think it was the bomb, and I think that's interesting. Uh, but what I noticed was the way that the wires, it, it comes out of that room, goes into the wiring, right? And then as we're zooming out from the wires, then um, I'm going to just keep fucking calling it the cave. It evokes that image first of the angel wings, uh, the way that the show is depicting them with that symmetry coming out. And of course, uh, the, the way that we've seen that the lines are coming from it. And it also in a way repeats again that string motif, that idea of string theory, which the show has been doing a great job using and bringing into the intro uh, to depict those multiple worlds. So it's doing a lot of different things there. And that enters us into Chirigatse. We have Lyra staring up at a huge stacked city in front of so many stairs, lots of stairs, and large windows, large arches. And often in the show, in this episode, they have been placed in front of Will. Uh, watch out for that when you rewatch this episode. There are great visuals. And I get that the stairs are symbolic of the whole different worlds, right? But man, stairs suck. So I think this is such a good symbol of a long journey ahead. Because every time I look at stairs, I get exhausted. So I'm sure these kids are exhausted. You know, they're tired. Tired kids. Yeah. <sighs> they're in an abandoned city, though, right? So Lyra enters this city with no one else around, just food and bugs crawling everywhere and i think i saw some unfinished risotto on a couple plates i'm just putting that Mm. out there oh my favorite (laughs) i didn't see that i I figured that the fruit just lying around was the replacement of the risotto and also the clothes on the Mm -hmm. clothing line thingies but yeah i really liked how Shidagatsi looked the architecture and like how the streets and everything looked really reminded me of like southern Spain for instance Córdoba just because I've been to that city um, and uh, like other parts of Andalusia uh, who, which has had these western Islamic influences uh, since uh, during the so-called golden age uh, which was what they said when I was visiting and going to museums and stuff um, anyway their golden age was under Muslim rule from the 8th to the 12th century and that was like a really big a good part of their history there was a lot of like progress and visiting people from all over the world and I think Eliana is going to talk a bit about that later but um, yeah the architecture and everything really reminded me of Cordoba and also, fun fact, if you're a fan of uh, Song of Ice and Fire, in Cordoba, the uh, the Roman bridge, which is Roman, but like the, the way it looks now is mostly from that Muslim rule time. Uh, that bridge was the base of the long bridge in Volantis in Game of Thrones. Ah. Uh, so that's fun, I think. Yeah, also just like seeing the city this time, which with all these steps and everything that Chloe mentioned, with it being on a hill and everything, it really reminded me of different paintings of the Tower of Babel, uh, which seems fitting, with, because I know you've all talked about how Sitagatse and the Tower of Angels in particular is really similar to the Tower of Babel. 
Yeah, Eliana spoke about it in a little depth back, I think, in the Subtle Knife, I want to say chapter 5 or 6, when we get to the actual tower, so I know it'll come up again in the series, but that look, just the stacked look of having everything on top of itself and representing that hubris of humans who thought they could have everything and take it all is something really wild. And there's really that creepiness, like uh, going back to the abandoned city vibe going on, you have the wind blowing through the clothing and we actually get a shot of the alleyway. They kind of zoom out from the cafe area, which I saw the risotto on a cafe table. It looked oh. like it was risotto or noodles. Yeah, if you pay attention, mm-hmm. it was like a left corner, but they have little cafe tables out, kind of Mediterranean looking, uh, beautiful view. And it, I could see some plates of unfinished food. But right during that, they flash to kind of an empty alleyway before Lyra enters it. And the wind is blowing through the clothing. But if you listen, there's a wispy, kind of creepy noise underneath, and it's really quiet. It's like a weird rustle. And at the very end of the episode, when we have the will shot with the specter behind it kind of rolling out in that uh, way, kind of like the magnesium alloy, it's the same noise that is being played. So I kind of was trying to watch this time and see that rustly, creepy noise underneath and the wind blowing during different areas and see if I could hear it again. But it looks like they're going to be using that to show specters are near quietly, and I like that. They also have the flicking of the lights in some scenes to indicate that, I think. Well, that's because they have weeping angels in their town, Lo. Yes, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, yeah. If If you watch other BBC productions and you say all this anger to, like, Okay, this is creepy. I've seen I've seen the great. reference. I know what it is. <laughs> Someday we'll get you there. We gotta work on it, Lo. We gotta get Eliana into Doctor yeah. Who. But that is exactly what I thought. I'm like, this is the lights flickering and the angels. This is definitely a, P- a BBC production. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the the sound stuff, and as you were saying about Tower of Babel and both of you, and that it looks like some depictions of it. That Chittagaze, like, physically looks like the way people have portrayed it in art. I think that goes to show, like, you know, some of the care that's been given to producing this show. And as you said, like, I, I mean, it comes through the sound. But also, you know, watching it and seeing it actually come to life, it really hammers home as Lyra walks through the city um, from the start. How this city in the sky was sort of, like, portrayed as this incredible, like otherworldly heaven surrogate right like up there like it's gonna be paradise we walk in it's empty it's worldly and it's devastated and we've talked about it as a sort of movable garden uh of eden again we see that it's populated by children um who are supposed to be innocent um but something that lo said regarding the fallen fruit representing the people having left kind of made me think of fallen fruit the fall and 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 biting from the fruit of knowledge in that garden so yeah, I'm going to talk a bit more about fruit later, I think. But yeah, Never definitely fruit stuff. symbolism. Yeah, I'm like, we have at least three Eden conversations to get through today still. <laughs> so everyone just hang in, buckle up, <laughs> let's get through some scenes because we do have some Garden of Eden stuff to talk about. And in the discussion, Shh, we'll yeah. get there, we'll get there. Lyra is not asking the alethiometer things. They're on a break. You know, and we know what that means. That usually means that you're actually just going to break up. So Lyra and the alethiometer might break up. She does not trust it after Roger's death. She thinks it led her astray or withheld information from her. Pan and her go back and forth about this. He's in his Pine Martin form, being adorable. He changes a bunch. 
this episode for you demon complainers out there, Eliana. <clears throat> what? Um, I mean, yes, but. <laughs> Some of us are just happy with what we get, okay? Some of us have had bad adaptations of books to shows and are just happy with what they get, Eliana. In my defense, anyway. <laughs> I was just being critical Asian mom that I am. <laughs> they've met my expectations. Look at them rise. Look at them. I knew uh, that they could do better. And they did. I think that the only thing that could make this better, what they've done in response to your demon critique, Eliana, is if they sent us our demon statues. Anyways, send us demon statues. Statues of angels are outside the tower. Again, as Lo and I discussed, that's never a good sign in a BBC production. Uh in Doctor Who, specifically, ends a few arcs, let's just say. Uh, there are angels guarding at the top and angels flanking the bottom, and the immediate two angels that we actually see at the tower are very masculine-bodied, so I'm guessing, uh, in my mind, this is kind of the foreshadowing for our Baruch and Balthamos, even though literally everything in this season is technically foreshadowing, now that I say it out loud, mm -hmm. it's a visual TV show. But <laughs> uh, it seems that that kind of is there. They they look like what I expect Baruch and Balthamos will beautifully sparkle and dazzle onto our screen at the end of the season and look like. I also just want to uh, contribute this important fact that our friend Emma on Twitter uh, calls Baruch and Balthamos the Gangels. Oh, <laughs> yes. I think that angels, is very yes. important. That is important. That's good. That's good. Yeah, regarding Lyra distrusting the alethiometer. I think it's interesting that they're setting that up um, and giving her reasons why to distrust it this early on. And they might be using that rather than her refusing to use the alethiometer unless Will tells her to, uh, as in the books. I I'm curious to see if that's setting it up for something that they're going to change a little with her motivations later. At least they set it up from the top, so yeah. it's not as much changing for a boy. <laughs> yeah, as exactly. likes exactly. to utilize in his works. Which is, yeah, which I think would be a positive change. So I'm, it's just something that I've noted. Coming back to something that we mentioned in the opening credits, we were again discussing the influence of MC Escher in the Alhambra Palace, which is in southern Spain. And as Lo has pointed out, um, a lot of Chittagase really seems to emulate that sort of architecture. And it's something we've been discussing throughout uh, our episodes covering the show, including I think in season one in the trailer episodes. I don't... We might have discussed it in the book episodes, but, you know, I'm getting older, and the Alhambra, so coming back, the Alhambra and its tiles were a large influence on M.C. Escher, but the production team, I think, has done a great job of using these and balancing them together and separately uh, to build out this world in his dark materials and weaving it into the opening credits and the sets really making it cohesive. And I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that I've discussed before um, for those of you who weren't able to tune in. But the chevron-like pattern that we see on the tower, uh, we kind of actually see now reflected throughout the rest of Chittagaze's planning, uh, such as the bricks on the paths. And we also see a lot of these other geometric patterns, even on the vents and grates of the place. And it's, it's just really great detail. And I think that chevron-like pattern, especially on the tower, is quite reminiscent of tessellations, which M.C. Escher liked to employ in his art, but also if you really look at how it manifests here and in the influences on Chittagaze, we start to see some of those elements from the opening sequence really come to life. The tessellations uh, feel derived 
from some of Escher's work in uh, that way of that iron pattern, even though he's not the first to, to explore those, especially if you look at his arts, um, The Woodcuts, Metamorphosis 1 and 2, as well as Convex and Con's Cave, which really brings together this idea of a crossroads, especially with all of those different stairs. And we see stairs being a big part of the way that Chitagaze is structured. You have that cube slash rhombile tiling that creates that illusion of interlocking, um, Again, geometry, but it also kind of looks like cubes laid together, but flattened. Um, and it goes well, I think, with the visual cues of the different uh, lines, the way that lines have been operating in the opening sequences and throughout uh, the visuals in Shidagaze, which, again, speaks to the idea of those interlocking worlds, that cross-section, of course, of mathematics and art, but also pushing the boundaries of physics, which is what's happening here. I don't know enough about music, but I w wish I did, because I would love to pay attention more to the way uh, the music is composed. If any of you have ever read or, or looked at the book Girdle Escherbach, which talks a lot about that intersection of art, music, mathematics, and how those come together. Uh, there's also this idea of transformation that M.C. Escher explores in his art, those themes of things changing. Um, and things are changing in this season, right? But also with the Alhambra, as we said before, Chittagaze is a place of cultural exchange, exchange in general within our real world, but also uh, Chittagaze here in this interdimensional crossroads. And They've done a great job. The The team has done a great job, again, weaving that through visually when it comes to the stairs in Chittagaze, but, you know, almost every street, right, and room in this house, with the way that the stairs and the doorways work, it feels like you're going through a new world, you're exploring, everything's winding and maze-like, and you can see how the tower and the knife would influence the actual cultural development of the city and its people, and how it all holds together. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the music. There's a lot to be analyzed with the music. And I love music and I am a musician, but I am busy doing this and I just haven't even thought to work on analyzing it because we have other people that do it for us, like Matt from The Dust Cast. If you have not listened yes, to The to Dust Cast, up. check them out. He actually has a review up right now on the music, a music preview kind of of the music for series two that is really great. And I can't wait to see what they come up with with him, Holly, and anyone else that comes on this series to discuss it. So we'll yes. see what they say. It does remind me of the lantern slide from The Subtle Knife. All the time in Chitagatse, the sense of how different a place this could have been if it hadn't been corrupted, how easy it would have been not to make the knife if they'd seen the consequences a world of teeming plenty, of beautiful seas and temperate weather, of prosperity and peace, and they still wanted more. I think that sums up Chitagatse so well, and visually with that in mind, just of how beautiful and perfect it is, and that interlocking, like you say, of these worlds coming together, and not just worlds, but these fates, these people, these destinies, right, Two with Will and Lyra. Family. Oh my god. Exactly. That's a great song to sing about it. I was thinking of Lyra by Kate Bush. Oh, yes. Uh, but as always, as I always am, but it, that interlocking, those worlds colliding, I think that's going to be a lot of tension coming up, not just for the Lyra and Will plot, but for other plots moving forward. Yeah, then we return to the Medicerium, to the Medicerium boys and girl. And we have some returning <laughs> cast members. We have Fra Pavel, who's portrayed by Frank Burke. This Frank dude, 
has been in The Last Kingdom. And surprisingly, also, he was in, in uh, 2019s. Wait, that came out already? Yeah, he was in Dumbo in 2019. Damn. And none of us saw it, right? None of us. I would watch yeah. it for like Colin Farrell because I think he's an incredible actor. But I'm also like, why is this the project he chose? I mean, I feel like I should. Aren't there less racist movies you can remake? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it already came out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That came oh out and it's God. over, girlfriend. It's yeah. over. Okay. <laughs> it's over very fast. Well, we also have Daphne Keen's dad, Will Keen, in this scene, and his father MacPhail, uh, which I would prefer to spell with an F instead of PH. <laughs> uh, but anyway. And then we have Cardinal Sturk, uh, who is Ian Peck, and he's been currently in Peaky Blinders. But he was also apparently a Death Eater in mm-hmm. Deathly Hallows Part 2, which I had no idea about. And then, uh, in, according to the credits, there's Sean Gilder as Father Graves and David Langham as Garrett. Uh, so we'll see if they turn up again. The Cardinal is surveying photos of the mountain. And discussing what Azrael has done with Father MacPhail and Fra Pavel and the other white dude that looks like the other white dudes in the scene. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, that happens. That, that happens to me sometimes when I watch things. I'm like, is this I that totally forgot other I wrote that. Oh god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I committed. Uh, the cardinal calls what Azrael has done heresy, but Pavel and MacPhail are like, "All right, but like, dude, it's it's there. All right, it happened. It's probably always been there. Everyone can fucking see it. It's enormous." This is not at all relevant to current political uh, situations. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. The cardinal yeah. doesn't like their approach, though. Uh, again, not relevant <laughs> to current events. Uh, Pavel offers the witch that they captured and he's like, oh, we can just torture her for info, right? Mrs. Coulter turns out it has been here the entire time uh, in the corner. Blink and you might miss her from the opening shot because you can just barely see her legs. She interrupts and then puts on her act begging them to let her take care of it. Then Father MacPhail is afraid of Mrs. Coulter taking control. Then Mrs. Coulter gives a little speech on like, <laughs> everyone fails, even me. Y'all failed, and then she's like, I'm never gonna fail again. She asks the cardinal to test her on what she discovers, <laughs> and he makes her kiss the ring to seal the deal before she goes and tortures the witch. It's really, really weird if this is foreplay, but. Hey, whatever gets you off. And you know what? Pullman has written in the lantern slides that Marisa has never had a lover she gave a shit about, mm. and she didn't keep servants, didn't keep lovers. Crazy shit. Uh, Azriel must have been the only one she had actual somewhat weird feelings about, but we talk about the Magisterium on the regular. I think there's so much great setup here. Lo and I are going to have a field day mm-hmm. when we get to the dusty discussion. Sorry, Aliana. But if you're looking for a great view at the Magisterium in comparison to some of the real religious organizations, check out Dark Material Podcast discussion of Calvinism in Northern Lights, the idea of North. You know, there's a sequence of events here that I think is really interesting. They block it well. We don't see Coulter. Like, you almost don't see her. You see her legs. She's revealed eventually. The men are all in black, seemingly alone, and Coulter is revealed in scarlet to signify that she's the outlier. And, of course, her being a woman is very much so highlighted because McPhail says, oh, we can't have this woman do it. Uh, We all know the magisterium, the setup that they're kind of, you know, sexist, etc., the whole thing. 
So she's wearing red in this highly Christian kind of environment. Very scarlet letter. It fits really well, the scarlet letter. It really reminded me of it because you have Hester Prynne, who's a young woman made to wear a scarlet A to mark her indiscretion of having a daughter out of wedlock with a man she refuses to name. The whole town thinks that she and this unnamed father should be punished and her long lost husband returns out of nowhere and is like, yeah, stone that guy. And I don't really care what you do about the wife, but we'll figure it out. Uh, The town at one point later on tries to take her daughter away from her. The story gets a little different direction wise than what Mrs. Coulter goes through from here. But her lover does die in her arms after confessing their affair to the town square. And eventually she dies too. Hester's story is reminiscent here for me because Coulter is very much ostracized in this scarlet outfit, and she is consistently volunteering to get the upper hand to try to take the fall for these idiotic men to use it to her advantage and exploit the situation. Hester and Dimsdale in The Scarlet Letter has a really strong theme recalling the story of Adam and Eve, with sin resulting in expulsion and suffering. It also results in knowledge of what it means to be immoral. For Hester, The Scarlet Letter is a physical manifestation of the sin, and reminder of her painful solitude, which later in the episode we get Coulter saying, it will be my sin. Hester contemplates casting off her A to obtain freedom from an oppressive society and a checkered past, as well as a place without God, the absence of God. Society excludes her, and it rejects her and expels her from it, and she considers that the possibility of traditions being upheld by Puritan culture might be false and not designed to bring her happiness. Yeah, exactly. Lots of transformation, lots of stuff there. And the scene is framed in general as after we get that idea of like the scarlet, the scene's kind of framed as a last supper as well for the cardinal with that wine being pushed toward him. She then moves to the desk and she pushes wine to him to say, please drink the blood of Christ. I'll take care of all this and torture the hell out of the witch. Uh, I think this wine was a great foreshadowing of Boreal's death that we're going to see this season, I'm sure, as well. But it's very much so framed that she's the outlier, the men are out to get her, but the cardinal wants to let her take the blame. She lies to them. She says, I didn't make it to Azrael in this scene because they say, what did you learn from Azrael when you got to him on top of the mountain? And she's like, I didn't even see him, though we saw her macking on him. Like, we know. And when you think about that, and this line that she's doing in this scene, when Ruta stabs the cardinal and all that chaos kind of happens, that was the happiest chaos that she could have asked for as we see her exploit that moment and use it. It all starts to fall into place. Yeah, and I mean, her lying about kissing Azrael, that's what makes it hot for them. That's what they get off on. <laughs> this scene really reminded me of uh, that scene in the movie Downfall, uh, where Hitler is yelling ah. at people that everyone makes memes of. Like, when they edit <laughs> what they see. Yes. And I don't know if that makes sense, but like Nazi vibes and dude being in denial. So yeah, it made me think of that. <laughs> but yeah, like Chloe said, we'll talk about this later because <laughs> there's some stuff there. So stick around if you've read The Secret Commonwealth. Something that I also found interesting was when MacPhail and the Cardinal is fighting about like what what they should say. Uh, that sort of read as a struggle over discourse, according to me. And this is something I talk about in my essay about power relations in historic materials. But the way that Foucault describes discourse is discourse is something that like determines what 
what is said and what can be said, and it impacts how we understand the world. So, for instance, if the discourse about sex and gender, just like hypothetically speaking, would be that there is just male and female and men and women, this might hypothetically possibly impact um, how those of us who don't identify that way are treated by the rest of society. In Lyra's world, heresy is sort of a discursive limit. You're not supposed to talk about heresy, things that are heresy. So that impacts what can be said, what can be done, what can even be fought. Uh, and I think that's very clear in this scene um, when as soon as uh, MacPhail says something that's a tiny bit heresy, the cardinal just shuts it down. So that, yeah, you can really see that this, this discourse they have really impact what you can even do uh, or think in that world. I think that's a that's an interesting point you bring up uh, regarding Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, and um, what Foucault has said about uh, the discourse again, as you said, on sex and gender, and you know that inability to define it, and as you said, for there not to be a place for people who don't don't identify as within that binary of male or female, men or women, you know that inability to even speak of it because it would be considered heresy. Uh, I don't I don't remember. I read this essay of yours a while ago impacts their ability to even exist in such a world, right? And that seems to be something that the cardinal is doing here, saying, well, if it's heresy, it doesn't exist. Mm. And that inability to exist, therefore, makes them marginalized. It seems, though, what, what Mrs. Coulter is doing here is exploiting something from a different philosopher, that idea, this Freudian idea of repression, and bringing that to the forefront. Um, you know, Foucault and Freud, two different ways of looking at things, and... I think there's a it's not lingered upon in this episode necessarily, but there's an interesting, I think, theological discussion that arises from what's going on in this scene where the cardinal almost seeks to deny that, again, that city was there or is like, wow, it suddenly appeared there by acts of humanity. People <laughs> made this happen, right? And whereas Father McPhail's like, wait, hang on, hang on. I think that city was actually always there, right? And that there actually maybe many more cities, many more worlds like it. And I forget which... And so we've actually discussed this in a previous episode. Uh, episode 8, apparently, of Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass, depending on which world you live in. Uh, the new world or the old world. Um, chapters 21 and 23, about that tension between Galileo and the church and questions of faith and how to integrate that with new scientific discoveries. Pullman talks about that specific situation with Galileo, and we're going to just summarize that quote uh, directly in an interview of how the church had been seeking control of people's thoughts and then denied the truths that Galileo was saying about heliocentrism. And you, everyone, I'm pretty sure, okay, no, I was going to say, I was going to say something, and I thought it was actually uncontroversial for a second, where I was like, we all know that the world revolves around the sun, then I remember that there's flat earthers, <laughs> and then I was like, I hate everything. Um, Some of us do not know that, apparently. <laughs> Yes, apparently this is actually not something everyone believes. B.O.B., the musician, I loved him. Turns out he's a flat earther and I was like, fuck my life. Anyways, Pullman compares this 
struggle to what the magisterium does with the idea of dust and its connection with consciousness and of course eating of the fruit of knowledge which is going to come back up throughout this episode and this entire series and we're seeing two different philosophies here the cardinal taking that conservative stance calling the acknowledgement of what's clearly there again heresy and that's still tied to dust but he is the position of most power in this room he's trying to hold on to that power and the magisterium's power is denying that this world bridge exists. Whereas I think it's kind of interesting that Father McPhail is taking what some might argue is a slightly more progressive, big emphasis on the word slightly, very slightly uh, progressive stance in being like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. It's there, all right? And then seeing it as something of like, how do we actually reconcile this? How do we reckon with this in our faith when we're seeing it there? And it's an act and is sort of saying that it is we as an institution, as a faith, as a church, need to be the ones to adapt. And then on the other hand, though, we have Mrs. Coulter, who's kind of offering a middle road, um, offering an adaptation that kind of preserves the magisterium's power. And again, that control of knowledge and thought by interrogating the witch. And Chloe's spoken quite a bit on Mrs. Coulter's outfit, um, and has before in some of the trailer episodes, I believe, and we'll probably come back to that in a bit. But it's interesting to see uh, her in that red outfit and also in offering that cup to the Cardinal. It's a move that we've seen Mrs. Coulter do quite consistently throughout the series, uh, especially in the first season. And it because it's that consistency in her character, it carries weight. And I will say, you know, I think that the show, again, has adapted well to criticism this season from this episode and if you pay attention to the visuals and the sound uses it well to carry the storytelling mrs coulter constantly offering people drinks for some reason almost feels like hades offering the pomegranate and i think we again saw father mcphail in the first season refuse a glass of anything from mrs coulter and here, the Cardinal's accepting that glass of wine, and I think, of course, it's laden with that sexual energy, but in the context of this interrogation, it's almost violent, right? The liquid in this light resembles blood, which is one of the things that wine, uh, I think you pointed this out earlier in the episode, Chloe, does signify in the Catholic faith with the transubstantiation of the wine into Christ's blood, and... If I'm not mistaken, I wasn't able to rewatch this scene on doing this. The cinematography kind of conveys that shift in power here as well. At first, we kind of like had the shots of the cardinal looking up at him. And then, you know, we have the shots of the other priests straight on. But then eventually the camera, at first it's kind of looking down at Mrs. Coulter when we introduced her, starts shifting focus. It starts shifting um, to look up words at Mrs. Coulter as she begins to take the upper hand and power in this scene. That's really interesting because later when she tortures, there's something interesting about how it focuses uh, on her demon and it starts the feet and it pans upwards as she walks out of the door. But yeah, that's really interesting. Well, after that great cinematography, we're going to get something even better. It's beautiful. It's Lyra and Pan meeting will it's what we've always wanted we've all our lives our careers everything has been moving towards this moment will and lyra on a screen meeting and i thought we should start this off with one of the lantern slides from the subtle knife she got say under the moonlight deserted and silent and open the colonnades drenched in soft shadow the casino garden so perfectly clipped and swept the gravel paths every house lit every door open to the warm night. It was the first place where Will had ever felt entirely safe and entirely welcome and entirely at home. Lonely, yes, at first, 
but he lived in that condition like a fish in water. He would never know how inconceivably strange he appeared at first to Lyra. I'm sad. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to get us all sad, but I'm just, you know what, I just want to share my gloom. It just, uh, it, uh, I, I have to cherish the good thing while we have it. Mm. I have to stop being gloomy about it, but some of the best parts are the gloom of it. So Lyra <laughs> busts into Will's new house that he has, uh, safest place he's ever lived. And she's like rummaging through this house and he taps her from behind. And the funniest crap in the world is that like Lyra's like, whoa, how dare you? It's a throwback, actually, to series one, episode one. She pulls an Asriel on him. She puts him in a lock hold, slams him down on the table. And she's like, don't sneak around, even though she was the one breaking into where he's staying. And Lyra introduces herself as Lyra Silvertongue to him, not Lyra Balacqua. And I think it's also super cute that they also break the bottle or whatever in their fight, which is also a parallel to to episode one of season one. And then Will cleans it up because he's a good boy who cleans things up. Okay, yeah. And then she calls him a servant, like the servants that cleaned it up. Good Mm. job, Lyra. (laughs) Shit. We'll get to that. Will, uh, Will hasn't seen a demon right ever so he's like what the fuck and pan is like do not touch me please do not touch me and lyra's a little taken aback right she's like whoa you have no demon uh foreshadowing yes a little bit they're actually illustrating that well we'll talk about it i know in a bit but they're doing well to illustrate it the kind of the little things you don't know if you haven't read the books right to make it like that is a that's the sin right there and she and Pan kind of get freaked out because of it. Like, they actually make it a very important part of the episode, which I'm into. They freak out, they back away, and she leaves him. She's like, uh-uh, uh-uh. But it's also kind of weird because didn't she just help Billy Costa, mm. even though she was so disgusted at his lack of... De- Anyways, I digress. I think that it's it's jarring, right? Because she's seen what it means for someone to not have a yes. demon. And then she's like, whoa, but this person seems fine. He could have been a witch. Chilling. Um, <laughs> as they've discussed otherwhere, um, in other places, they have like men who are witches, and you know, seeing how large Chittagatse is, I think you really get a feel of how faded Will and Lyra's convergence is. Like, of all the houses she could have broken into, she picks this one. <laughs> well, the next scene is another beautiful, fateful scene because it's Lee and Hester soaring around in the sky being sweet and lee is actually if you blink you'll miss it he's whistling the song that was the song they sang in their first appearance in series one old best friend by joshua james so he's whistling it right at the very start of their scene very quietly just whistling away can you whistle no i cannot Um, whistle i can't whistle though can you whistle sound but i can't like whistle a melody (laughs) (laughs) like i can make oh yeah same I can do one, like, really high-pitched whistle Mm-mm. that's useful for dogs, and that's all I need, <laughs> I guess. Yes. Oh, that was almost a whistle! Oh, that was almost wow. a whistle. Okay. I just wanted to, to understand where we all were Why on I the wasn't whistling, whistling the spectrum. To you? Because I, otherwise I would have been going... <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Beatboxing. Okay. <laughs> Well, they find the witches, right? They see the witches, they see Lake Inara, and they head that way. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting because I was like, 
this has to be like an era, right? Because they're heading to Serafina. So I, I did some Googling because I was like, I know where like Inara is. I have not seen pictures of it. And I think it is, but it's like way more dramatic than it is in our world because TV. But yes, <laughs> Lake Inara, in our world, the English name for that lake is Lake Inari. And in Finnish, it's Inariarvi. And in Inarisami, the name is Anarayarvi. So... Like you might have gotten from my different pronunciations of names, this lake is the third largest lake in Finland. Uh, it's the largest lake in Satmi. And for those of you who haven't read all my bullshitting about Sami culture and Nordic influences in historic materials, the Sami people is the indigenous people of sort of the Nordic countries. And their land, Satmi, is in contemporary Norway, Finland, Sweden and Russia. But it has been caught up uh, by colonialism. And yeah, I've talked about how I think there's some interesting links between Sami culture and uh, the witches. It's like, it's not one to one, but there's some interesting things. And one thing that I found now when just reading up on Lake Inari is that this lake and this area has been really uh, important for the Sami people living there, the Inari Sami. And some of the things that are important for them or has been historically uh, is these islands in the lake. There's more than 3,000 islands in total in the lake, but two of them that I wanted to mention, the first one is in Finnish, it's called Hautumasari, and in Inaresami, it's called Havdienaum Sauli. I think I got this right. I tried to research. I can, I can pronounce Finnish things. I can't pronounce Sami things. Well, this lake anyway uh, is served as a cemetery for ancient Sami people and then there's this other lake Ukunasari or Eisolia which was historically a sacred site for the Sami people in this area so I think it's just very interesting that Pullman decided to specifically call out this lake as an important lake for the witches maybe he was just like well witches they like nature this is a cool lake it's very big but Considering some other things that we'll talk about later that is pulled from the Sami people and Sami culture, I think it might have been on purpose. And I'm like in two minds about this in general, because I think it's interesting that he's pulling from this people who have historically sort of been ignored, as many indigenous people have, and like their culture hasn't been appreciated and things. But also I'm like, if you're going to use their culture, maybe just like in actually have them in the story and another thing that connects to this is how in the books they mention that the witches are from l land Uh, i don't want to say that word because that word uh, consists of two words one word starting with an l and then land and the word starting with an l is a slur in swedish and other countries for sami people it's a slur for their ethnic group so and it's also the name of this area in the north of sweden and finland where they have traditionally lived so i mean he's he's saying that these witches live in a land and that land is named after the sami people in our world but it uses a slur for them so i'm like Obviously, you're pulling on some stuff here. Maybe just like do it properly. But anyway, uh, I I have some. Fun. It doesn't seem like he's like educated about it in full. Mm. 
Like he's using some of it, but he doesn't know the extent no. of it. Yeah. Anyway, colonialism. Um, listen more to my episode <laughs> with Amy Blackfire. I have some more thoughts about colonialism and talks about talk a bit more about how the Swedish state actually sucks. And don't put low on a new list. Keep low off lists. I'm already a traitor to the nation. This has been established by the Nazi people. I'm I'm not straight and I'm not cis. And I'm like anti-nationalism and the state. So I'm like, I'm already on the list. It's fine. <laughs> What's another one? What's, another? What's one more list? Oh. Yes, um, absolutely. To echo what you and Chloe were saying. It seems like, you know, there's a sort of um, lifting of other people's cultures without necessarily paying respect. Or as you said, they're could- showing that they actually live there. On a different note entirely, Hester has her own heater. So cute, and that's what Lee is fixing. So bad. It's the best character. Hester? Yeah. Yes. Hester and Sofinex. Didn't she? Someone was saying, I don't know if it was you who was telling me this, the demons actors, because of the pandemic, had to record in their closets and then send the audio over. Yes, I've seen videos uh, of this. Well, some did. Yes, uh, Christella Alonso, who did Hester, she especially, she had to do all of her stuff at home, and she doesn't have, like, a good sound set up. Most so people she don't. was recording in her, in her closet. I don't know. She's so cute. You used to do that. That's true. Oh, I did, didn't I? You used to record in your closet. Oh my god, 2018! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit, I did! <laughs> yeah, you could be a demon. I could be Hester, but I'm not. Yeah. Christella Alonso is back as Hester and doing an amazing job, nice and sassy. Uh, there's a point, actually, with the witches where she's like, we're out of our depth, Lee. Like, straight up just looks up at him and is like, we do not belong here with these ladies, Lee. And he's like, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, but he's like, shh, be quiet. <laughs> Don't make it worse. Don't sell us out, Hester. But yes, she has her own heater, which I thought was cute. She calls it my heater. And... <laughs> Uh, speaking of demons, Pan has a soul-to-soul moment with Lyra. Says that, you know, Lyra, we need a new friend. Starts to imply, like, chillax, you know? And then Will shows up and apologizes for any offense that he caused because he's a good boy. And Lyra and him further discuss demons. And then he gains a better understanding of, like, ah, yes, this is what a demon is. And he's like, I'd like to stick around and explore for a bit. Yeah, and I, I really liked in this soul to soul that they once again they bring up Roger and like we had a friend uh, and everything like that because I think it's really good that they keep Roger in the back of our minds because obviously hopefully he'll come back in season 3 so the TV audience I think needs to remember that he exists yes and it's gonna be very easy to forget Mm. him like I mean you have Will now so I have Will. I don't have to think about Roger, who died for our sins. Roger did die for our sins. Yeah. <sighs> Will says that he followed a cat through a hole. <laughs> it's the best line in the fucking episode. <laughs> She's in, like, the grin. He just gives this kind of, like, this, like, shy, like, kind of goofy grin. Like, yeah, I followed a cat through a hole to get here. So he's like, I don't know. It sounds crazy to me, too. But I did it. They They do a really good job of, like, there's a lot of plot summary. Like I said earlier, the, the demon info drops that maybe the casual watcher wouldn't get. They do a really good job of cementing, like, this is the lore about demons. You don't touch demons. Don't forget that. Like, uh, 
here will this is what it means blah blah blah. especially for will who quote unquote doesn't have a demon uh but he does he we're we're gonna find that out later for sure i think it's a good job i think it keeps us aligned to what the lore of the show is the world building uh on a less wholesome note mrs coulter then tortures the witch that she has in captivity uh, the shot is framed so well like we said they they enter through kind of the hole and she examines her torture weapons through the porthole kind of looking at them and she holds up tweezers you think she'd take the big stuff but nope she goes tweezers and she takes off all of her finery the witch's demon is trapped in a cage and Coulter then begins to tell her look you can share your info or experience torture she asks about Lyra. The witch refuses to speak. And then there's a bunch of mutilation. A lot of body horror. Very creepy. She starts to tweeze the witch's cloud pine out of her body. Uh, and it is like, look, the only thing that I can relate to this is that one time this girl told me that she had her nipples pierced. And one of the nerves in her nipples like came out of the, the hole. Fuck? It was pierced wrong. And that, that can happen? yeah it's the only it's why i'll never think about getting a nipple piercing because of this and she said that like the way she saw the nerve ending and like she touched it and that she like barfed and pooped at the same time and so yeah so that is what like this reminded me of this like i was like oh oh because the whole time i just felt like something was being pulled out of my body while watching this and i can't watch it i could not finish watching that moment like i had to look away in the middle of it and have my partner tell me when it was over. But this did prove a popular fan theory. And I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure it existed before the show, but it more than likely did. I have to go do some deep diving at bridge to the stars or Chitigaze online, the chat uh, forums, but people have theorized the pine sprays are their source of magic, which makes sense when you think of the pine spray test and why, you know, the, the console has all of their pine sprays just on file. Uh, and, that is what's in their body. So we talked a lot about how it looked like designs made by lightning striking skin, for example, in series one, how they have these beautiful tattoos, kind of henna style tattoos. Uh, but it turns out it is their pine spray grown into their body. It is the source of their magic. And I don't know if I trust the console. I think we're going to get a look at Mr. Lansalias again this season, and I'm interested to see if they use anything from all published works about him. So I don't know if we should trust them yet there at the console, especially in the way the witches are being framed. Maybe we'll see a new subplot kind of come up. But in book, when Serafina frees Katya, the witch we're going to meet here from her suffering, she ends up traveling to Lansalius afterward. So I'm guessing that's what we're going to see in the next episode because we saw a picture of him from the preview. Uh, so either Serafina or Ruta will go and speak with him. Probably Serafina. She will probably chat with him about what Ruta says in this episode and talk about Azriel and the Magisterium's war. So let's move on to the torture. I'm calling it Coulter's torture porn because that's what it feels like. Like for her, this is quite obviously how she gets off in life or survives in life by being cruel to other people and capturing that cruelty. It's quite more physical in the books. She breaks the witch's finger in the books and tortures info out of her about the cloud pine spray test. But this visualization was so much better Uh, in the book. The men actually are in the room watching it. So it's a lot more intimate that the men are not in the room watching right now that she is just her, her demon and the witch and the witch's demon. She removes her rings which at first thought of a movie, you'd think, oh, you know, oh, they're going to 
keep their rings on and fist fight, but that is not the torture that she is going for. And there's something in it that kind of reeks of power control and her internalized misogyny. If you think about the transition between her last scene to this scene, she's made to kiss the Cardinal's ring in the scene before. And then in this scene, the first thing she does is she removes the trappings of power, mm. her rings, her finery, her jewelry, and tortures the witch one-on-one uh, because of how she feels she is treated by the men mostly. She's proving herself to be a part of them and continuing that illusion of being a part of them and playing as hard as them and being harder than these men. And when you kiss that signet ring, it's a form of power, a form of submitting. Kissing a ring is submitting and she has everything in her life controlled due to her status, her wealth, her family, no spoilers, but we learn a lot about her extended family in the Books of Dust. And she's had everything in her life pretty much controlled mostly, right? And she doesn't have her own control. So having to kiss that ring and submit and then being allowed to go take it out on a witch is disgusting. And just that internalization coming out to play that we see with Marisa. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good point that you tie these together Um her removing the rings and then as you pointed out that here she's in private as opposed mm-hmm. to in the books her removing the rings and being in this private space it almost feels like it's something uh, an unleashing right she can be herself and herself is quite terrifying <laughs> in this in this space where no one can see her and yeah. remove a, the way as you said her finery the way she portrays herself as submissive that's the face that she has to put on then we get to we go back to wholesome things thank god <laughs> it's a, it, there's a lot of whiplash but in a, it, it works it works it's fine yeah. um will and lyra are exploring chitagaze and they discuss dust lyra explains that people think that dust might be sin first of all final fantasy 10 called okay pull them in no i'm just kidding uh that's a final fantasy joke thank you gamers that's a pro gamer joke you know We get a great shot here of Will. They're checking out the alleyways and he peers through a very dusty window, like just straight up. It's a grimy window and he's staring straight through it. And I'm like, I see you. He's looking through his window and it's a dusty window. (sighs) I get it. I get it. Great framing shots of that throughout this for a lot of the characters. Uh, And that plays into, you know, a lot of the great visual storytelling that they have in this series and also some of the acting that they do to establish character like in this scene you know Lyra's doing her spunky Lyra thing she jumps onto she jumps onto like the steps right and when she's talking about dust whereas Will what he does he immediately bends over and he like puts a crate right side up starts trying to clean everything up putting fruit back inside the crate and so we get that reinforcement of Will as being responsible and caring I also really love that they have uh, more of a like playful dynamic in the scene than they do early in the book. Yes, with Lyra talking about dust and uh, and she asked if they have dust in Will's world and he said he says something like yeah we have dust but I don't think it's the same thing sort of jokingly uh, mm-hmm. and they just they're very cute and I love them. He actually stays that way. We're gonna see too. He's very like he's a lot lighter than how he's introduced uh, in the books. I did notice that that in the books you know he's kind of harsh and stressed because obviously it's that uh that John Mulaney joke that it's very small very stressed you know uh and he i don't know he's like not as aggressive in this as i expected and it's fine i like this too i'm fine with it but i expected him to be like 
angrier and madder all the time. So maybe we'll get some mad Will stuff in the next couple episodes when he has to get all like Lyra shaking his finger at her or something. But I was surprised. He he doesn't seem as aggressive. And it does look like that from some of the things we've seen in trailers or like those shots, right? Where he's yelling. Yeah. So that's true. I think I think it works well. They've got good chemistry. They hear a noise and then they see kids and then they run. They're two youngsters named Angelica and Paula, their sisters. You might recognize at least one of them. Liana Mormont from Game of Thrones, Bella Ramsey, uh, is playing Angelica. And then Paula, which in the books is Paolo, swapped out for Paula, is played by Ella Schrageitz, who it looks like this is her breakout role. And they are Aww. both very cute in these roles. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get mad at them at all or like be upset with them, which I couldn't really because they're helpless. You know, this is just how they are. Nature, nurture. Uh, but Ella, Paula, mm. she's adorable. Her yeah. little, like, like when she accidentally says Tulio's name and Angelica just looks at her like, excuse me? We talked about this, Paula. <laughs> yeah. the look she They've got a good dynamic, too. And I will say, in their defense, of course they ran. Lara just fucking runs at them. That's suspicious. <laughs> that's a weird thing to do. And another thing that's fun, again, in that visual storytelling, as they're doing that chase scene, which gives you great shots of the city, Will actually peels off from the chase uh, and meets them on the other side, which gives us a little bit of insight into how Will's mind works. He's a sharp kid, but also, if you will, he takes a short cut to meet them on the other side, going a through sharp something else. Kid, he oh a I didn't short do cut. that. Get out! Yeah, Ella. I didn't Get catch out. the sharp one, but the cut the cut was intentional. I'm that's... not gonna fire you in front of company, but I want you to know I'm thinking about it. It's not meant to be a pun. I think it's literally something that they did no, on purpose. I mean, Chloe, I actually didn't notice you that really, at all. You like you can't listen to the Dark Material podcast breakdown because Ian makes this joke like every time there's a cut between a scene he's like and then we cut to this <laughs> bless him i love amy and yeah. ian though yes. so that's what they can make as many puns it's just yeah. different yeah. when it's eliana you know well have Chloe you ever noticed my them. puns are celebrated you know my puns are celebrated oh. it's just eliana's are damned <sighs> motherless damned, damned. <laughs> <laughs> i love you <laughs> all right I love these orphans. They're great. They offer so I just I feel if you listen to our subtle knife breakdowns like I probably was a little empathetic with them. Uh my my stance was very empathetic because these kids as we learned they've lost their parents uh and they offer a soda to Lyra and Will kind of as a truce. Again, how am I going to dislike them? That was very kind and they I give thought us it was this a beer info at first. Dump. Uh, maybe it's a ginger beer. It could be mm. a ginger beer, you know. They give us an info dump, though, all about these specters, and they talk about losing their parents. And Paula mentions Tulio, like we said, being an adult and susceptible to the the specters. And Angelica's like, shh, shh, Yeah, and something that stuck out to me when I watched it the first time was that uh, when they're describing what the specters is, um, the specters are, um, I think it's uh, Paula who says, uh, that when you've been attacked by a specter, you're still alive, but everything that makes you human is gone. And that really struck me because the specter seems to be some sort of metaphor for mental illness, maybe specifically depression. And I've been in like two minds about how to think about 
that for a long time because I don't really like the idea that if you like being depressed means you don't have a soul you're not a human anymore but also like being depressed can sometimes feel like that so I don't know I have a bigger point on a related thing later but like I'm not sure but it stuck out to me that is interesting we'll talk about it in like a little more later because I do think that it's interesting that having your demon torn from you or severed from you being severed uh and Pullman said like it's an allegory for depression and self-hatred not just all mental illness but again I also wonder if that's in the category of to an extent Uh, and I think everyone analyzes it differently or like in a way, you know, it'll mean different things to people and how you've experienced it. So I don't know that Pullman was writing, like, one, a couple different kinds of experiences, but I do think it's interesting that, like, the idea of, like, having no drive mm-hmm. or no, not ambition, that's a poor word to use, but having, like, your demon ripped from you takes out the get up and go, you know, and makes you not able to do things. I find that interesting, and it, I mean... It, it it crosses such problematic like thoughts by making the specters that allegory because then you think of like people that are in a vegetative state that is so depressing and awful and sad like that have no control over their limbs or bodies and can't even do things and it's like I don't know there's there's a lot on the table there so hopefully the show wrangles it in which I yeah. think they will because if there's one thing about adaptations of shows I've noticed is they like to try to push like a a theme like this thing mostly resolves unless it's Game of Thrones. So themes are for eighth grade book oh, reports. Right. Yeah, um, well, which is what I read this book. Fourth grade book reports. So. Yeah, and I, I will say it might be more of like the writing. I don't know that in the books they say that having being attacked by a specter means that everything that makes you human is gone. Per no, se. I don't think so. But I think it's a show only line. Maybe clumsy but, writing. Yeah, it seems a. Yeah. Uh, a clumsy, just... I wonder also if it's just to give her something to say for her contract. You know what I mean? I yeah. mean, that's the other thing, is she has to say something, you know? They have to give her some sort of damn info dump. <laughs> and, and like, they don't have a lot in this episode. There's this scene, and there's the one other scene with the cat that we'll get to, but they, they say, you know, we're happy this way. We don't need parents, you know? Our island, our rules, and they leave. And they're like, see you around, see you later in our city we run, apparently. <laughs> uh... And that's kind of cute in a way, too. Like, they're just rowdy yeah. young young chicks being rowdy. I like that. Will Chick- leaves money, and Lyra then teases him for it also, which I love, for paying for food. He's like, what? Like, you pay for food you take. And she's like, okay. Yeah, and I love that they included the line that if you start behaving like grown-ups, the specters will get here. I, I'm pretty sure that's in the book, too, and I just, I, I just love it. Lyra is adorable. <sighs> It's very cute. I thought more deeply about that line. And it's like, if you, the idea that you pay for things, right? And that makes you a grown up, that responsibility. And that's, it, it, it's, Lyra and the other kids see this place as a place of providence and that Garden of Eden. But what moves Will into adulthood is that idea that, and outside of that realm of innocence is that idea, is that no, there is a price for things. So. Mm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, there's always a price. No. Okay, I like that. Only death can pay for life or, you know, etc. Yeah, I don't things know, like that. Like you know, that, that things yeah. aren't just given because, you mm-hmm. know, 
all that stuff that happened in Genesis, which is equal opposite yeah, reactions. The, the things, the things, yeah. Yeah, you know, you guys know words, which are made up. I, I also just want to state, like, low earlier you were saying, like, I can't pronounce American names and I can't pronounce anything, even real words, because yes. words are made up. Okay, it's all fucking made up, so who cares? But we care a little. Just enough, you know? <laughs> the next thing that I'm excited, this is, y'all know that I'm over here just like, it's Lee Scoresby and the witch's time. And Lo and I are probably mm. very excited about this section. So Lo, I'm going to let you take it away because Lee Scoresby has joined the witch's council. Yes, and there's a tree, and there's tree symbolism. Yes. Uh, so my first thought was obviously, is this the tree of knowledge? And then I thought, is it maybe Yggdrasil? And I'm going to be annoying and pronounce it mm. in Swedish, all the Norse names now. But anyway, uh, Yggdrasil is from Norse mythology and is the world tree. And the gods generally held their court, which is called Ting in Swedish or Fing, I think, in English. Anyway, they generally held their court below Yggdrasil. So there's this connection between the worlds with Yggdrasil. One root of the tree goes to Midgård, that is where humans live. One goes to Asgård, where the gods live. And one goes to Jotunheim, where the giants live. And one goes to Niflheim, which is where the dwarves live. I think I didn't write this up. <laughs> anyway, I'll return to this later in the discussion. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting, this moving between worlds with the witches who know the whispers between the worlds and everything. And something that my friend pointed out to me when I talked to her about it, because she's even more into mythology than I am, is that some trees in different mythology have fruit that will make you immortal. For instance, in Norse mythology, the golden apples that is kept by the goddess Idum is what makes the goddess immortal. So that's interesting with witches and the people being immortal and stuff, uh, at least on a symbolic level. So, yeah. So much eating and drinking things that leads to immortal. Could that ever be important no, in the series? No, of course not. How, why would that ever be important, Chloe? <sighs> I don't know. Like the milk from somewhere? I don't know. I don't know. From the, the blue milk that Luke Skywalker Yeah, gets? the blue milk that Luke Skywalker gets? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> or from like a fairy. breast milk that tastes like rum. I don't know. That could be a thing. <laughs> Stop! Is that when Pullman starts? That's writing a George about R. That, R. Martin that I really quit, different though. book series. Okay. I just uh, look. It's bad enough where it's at right now. When he starts that up, mm -mm. Mm, that's oh. true. Uh, oh. All these authors exchanging their uh, their lactation kinks. <laughs> but um, speaking of trees that are make people immortal, in the Garden of Eden, there is also alongside the tree of knowledge, the tree of life, uh, and they don't eat from that tree. Which is allegedly why we all die. Thank God. Just end it. You know what I mean? Jesus. I feel like this is also very me. Because I, like, I'll know Norse mythology. And then you'll say something about the Christian things. And I'm like, oh, right. Because I'm a horrible heathen. <laughs> also from Evangelion. Sorry. Different series also. Besides the lactation series. <laughs> Serafina lets Lee speak. That is so kind of her to just let Lee speak, you know? Lee's very lucky that he's allowed to speak in front of women. This is like a man being allowed on Themyscira, right? Like with all the Amazons around him. This is the one guy the Amazons have allowed on their island, and I really like so, that. He's very intimidating. So what you're too. saying is that Lee is Chris Pine? 
Yeah, yeah. Lee is Chris Pine. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the okay Chris's. Uh, but he's very intimidated by his new sister wives. You know, it's very obvious. So I saw something hilarious, and I'll take this out, where someone called Chris Pratt, Crisp Rat. <laughs> <laughs> killed me. Um, I was I like, how am I? Take that out. <laughs> okay, sure. I'll keep it in. Um, maybe we'll see how I feel when I edit this. <laughs> is uh, is is Lee in this meeting supposed to contrast Mrs. Coulter's presence in that magisterium yeah, meeting? I believe so. That's a great thought. I never thought about that because, like, this is. This is absolutely the meeting from the book, but it's very sped up, which I think is super impressive how they did it. Like, it's a very quick, fleeting scene, but it gave me a little, like, lasting... Like, I have impressions about it, right? Because he swears his protection about Lyra, where Coulter swears she's going to do whatever the Magisterium mm-hmm. wants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A contrast there. And in that moment, you know, as you're saying, where Elise swears his protection, Serafina then... Gives Lee something to take with him and use to call for her help. Listen, now that I have a sobered mind, I've rewatched the episode many times. I have some really interesting things to say about this. And the thing I have to say about it is sad. That's it. That was the thing. (laughs) That's it. Sad. I did not expect this. I did not. Like, I thought we weren't going to get... Because I've been saying, well, she didn't give him the flower. She didn't give him the flower. When's she going to give him the flower? And this isn't the... I don't think it's the flower, which I think Loa's going to mention in a moment. But it's... uh, I didn't think they were going to do it. I didn't. Yeah. Like, I was also like, oh, she's giving him a thing. But it doesn't look like the flower. What is it? Uh, And then, like I mentioned, I listened to the Dark Material podcast. And they theorized that what he got was some cloud pine from Servina to contact mm. her instead of a flower. Some, what do you think? Yeah, that if you look at it straight on the screen in high def, it's super bright. Like, it's light colored. It does not look like a flower. It looks like something that's almost glowing. It doesn't look like it's glow glowing, but it just looks very light. It does not look like a flower. You can almost see it. Like, you have to kind of zoom in and look at it. But, uh... I think it's probably cloud pine spray. Like that, that makes sense, especially with the reveal that the cloud pine spray is within you or within the witches. Because if we connect those dots, it's literally, <laughs> literally deeper. Uh, it, it's that she's giving him a part of herself, a part of her magic, wow. a piece of her. I'm just saying that you know who ships Lee and Serafina besides me. His Dark Materials on BBC HBO. Oh, I thought you were going to say low. Let me guess. But, oh, okay. No, I mean. <laughs> I was like, damn. She just pushed low aside like that. <laughs> no, no. I, I do want to add in the, what is it? I believe this is in the subtle, it's either in Subtle Knife or it's in Northern Lights, Lantern Slides. There's a lantern slide that Pullman put in there. That is, Lee Scoresby, attracted north by the money being made in the gold rush and making none, but acquiring a balloon by chance in a card game. He was the lover of a witch from the Corellia region briefly, but she was killed in battle. She spoiled me for women younger than 300, but he had plenty of lovers all the same. So I'm just saying, that's a pretty, like, that's a pretty bold statement that Lee Scoresby says he was spoiled for lovers younger than 300. Mm. Pretty specific. I'm just putting that out there. And... 
to be fair, this is a pretty big thing because the meeting goes on and the next topic we get is actually Queen Rudiscotti, who is mocking Lee a little bit. And I believe she does this in the book a little bit, too. Uh, she's basically there and asks, okay, witches, you're going to be a whole bunch of centrists your entire life, Lake Inara clan, or will you join the war against the Magisterium, hook up with me and Azriel's crew, and go save my witch friend? Uh, and it, it, it's a very strong scene. All of this scene is pretty strong. Anything uh-huh. with Jada Nuka is strong in this. Jada Nuka is killing this. She is slaughtering this like she slaughters the Cardinal, and I love that. Uh, and I think it was well done. Like I said, super swift. We have a lot of exposition given to us from the demons. Sergi and, of course, Kaiza are sitting there speaking, providing the interior while Ruta asks for them to help rescue Katya, who's the witch being tortured by Coulter. Katya in this also is played by Marama Corlett, and this is a good role for her. She's been in this, she was in this show called Blood Drive, a series, and she played a character named Aki, and it's a crazy series, dystopian, alternate 99 world, 1999, where a former cop has to take part in death races where cars run on human blood as fuel. Oh, God. Hmm. Crazy, crazy. So this is a cool role, a, a big role for her, I'm sure. That's all I really know her from otherwise. Yeah, I think she worked really well. And I actually think she really nailed the accent, uh, Katya did. It really sounds like how a Finnish person would speak English, I think. So that was really cool. Ah, I really like that. I didn't really even think much about that. But that she, like, I, I really like just her look. I like that they're really going into the whole world building mm. for witches. And it was also obvious that she was from a different yeah. tribe, right? That she was not mm. from Serafina's tribe. She didn't have the same look as the witches from that tribe. Uh, and you also see a lot of that when Ruta comes to, for the first time, to them. And you see all the witches kind of illuminated in front of the tree. Uh, you can see different costumes and lighter dresses compared to the darker dresses. And I think there's a really interesting split that's being portrayed because I joked about the witches being centrists, but and maybe something to talk about in the discussion when it comes to serpentine chatter. But this has interesting implications. Like, it changes Serafina's role in comparison, right? Because in the books, it's a good change, uh, but it, it adds more depth between the factions. But Serafina's clan is portrayed as centrists who are not really taking a side. They're choosing to help Lyra, but as Ruta and as Sergi say, Lyra's not all there is. People are suffering right now. You know, like, yes, this Lyra thing's important, but that's not our only help. There's bigger things happening to change things. Witches in general don't really take sides, as we learn often, which implies this war is a big deal. Ruta's implication is that she's willing to do something about the Magisterium and that Serafina should also be mad, but she's not really doing anything about it. It implies that the Magisterium could do what they're doing to Katya to all witches, not just Ruta Scotty's tribe, not just Serafina's tribe. Serafina should be angry about that and for her own people being taken rather than just trying to protect this random girl, prophesied or not. And that seems like the overarching battle, free will for all. Uh, I'm pleased to see that they're actually arguing the opposite side and that it ties better into Asriel's plot than Ruta just being the ex-lover. Uh, I think we'll get to that too. But on the other hand, I also see where this could diminish Serafina's role and Lyra's role in the story. I like the media that critiques this, though, and critiques its sources. And I think this is a really fair way to give Serafina an obstacle and some tension. And not just seem like a complacent, reluctant leader, because as we recall, she had to lead her tribe 
in the face of her mother dying and in the face of her son dying, and she chose her people instead and was afraid to continue with Purim. Lee's death is going to drive her out of this complacency, so I think that's what this setup is for. Uh, her handing the knot flower, the pine spray, whatever it is, to him, when he dies, that's a huge loss. It's blood on her hands. She told him he has to be more, and she said, you need to rise up, Lee. You need to do better. You need to protect this girl, and you need to stand for what's good, Lee Scoresby. You can't just wait for the money to come in. This isn't just a gamble that you can go on. And I, I think that's what's going to be played on for her. That's really going to drive her character for the last season. Because I don't think that this should be on any one witch, but it does give us a lot more witch time to explore what Serafina's choices will be. I mean, that's the other thing, though. When we don't have her point of view, we don't know what Serafina's doing in the books. Uh, we just hear, and then we find out, oh, and then I did this, by the way, earlier, and now we're going to this thing in my POV. So I think this also gives a lot of good drive behind what the hell Serafina's going to do for the next two seasons. So give her something to do. Yeah, and... I mean, I, I like the changes that they're doing for Rita Scotty. She didn't feel to me fully formed in the books and I felt like her motivation was just Asriel's dick. And this is, I, I think that this is better than that. And also uh, regarding what you were saying, it might not just be Lee's death that motivates her, but you know, when she gets more involved, she goes to Chittagatse and like some of her witches, I believe, mm. get attacked. Yeah. By the yeah. specters, so I think that could end up being a motivation, a motivating factor for her as well. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the emotional crux of the entire episode, <laughs> the climax of the episode, the best part of the episode, the greatest scenes. Yes, it is the omelette scenes. And yeah, Will is a sweet boy, and he's made omelette for Lyra, and he looks really good. Good job, Will. Um, and uh, Lyra asked if good. he was a serving boy in his world. And uh, no, Lyra, it's just that uh, capitalism makes us do things and actually do work instead of being rich <laughs> white girls who don't have to do work. And I think one thing that's interesting in this adaptation is that they have made Will into a black character. And that, for me, gives even more like, oh my god, Lyra, stop it vibes when she calls him a serving boy like Lyra is literally a white rich girl and from like a noble family her dad is a lord so yeah I think that's it's interesting yeah and there was kind of a shade of that in series one right with Coulter and with Benjamin that came out and that death kind of the way she treated him so it reminds me of that with how she sat on him and tortured info out of him and then killed him and wouldn't give out Mm -hmm. but like she also used some kind of provocative language of calling him boy and saying that you don't know what you're up against and uh it was obviously that was a bad use of that white aristocracy that is built kind of into these few characters but lyra i mean she has lived most of her life rich as you've said and like had every pleasure provided to her and yes she's friends with all the servants and so her yes she's thinking like oh well you know just like roger or someone but it's like when she, in the first season when roger was trying to speak to her and she ignored mm-hmm. him for coulter you know it's just do to do lyra over your head come on back in the game lots to learn lots to learn lyra yeah she's trying to make sense of it in her world and it's not like an awesome way that she defines it blinded yeah. by her privilege but then we do get to the scene, though, that is my favorite scene. Again, <laughs> Lyra poking her omelette, going, what is this? <laughs> Very suspicious. I, it's r- remarkable to me that her world doesn't have omelettes. 
Like, that's kind of weird. Or do people just not make her omelets? I don't know. Omelets are, can still be, like, fancy. Anyway, just her <laughs> eating it with her hands, holding it the whole time like it's a fucking burrito. I'm like, Glyra, it's an omelet, not a burrito, but it's amazing. Will then tries to offer pan food, and they both look at her like, what? 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 He they both look eat. at him like, yeah. I, and I think it's an understandable assumption yeah. with an animal there. And... Panna is very polite throughout this episode, to be honest. Makes up for Lyra's very brusque attitude. And, I mean, I think it's just because Pan's already in love. Yeah, but I, I think it's interesting that, like, he's obviously in love with Will, Panis, uh, And the idea that maybe a demon can be more in love with someone than the person is, is an interesting thought. Mm. I don't find it very interesting at all, Lo, and I wish she would not say these kind of things on my podcast. And that is all I'm going to say. I am going to come over there. I'm going to come through my window, which is my computer, and I'm going to get your ass. So you better just settle down. <laughs> I don't know who you think you are making jokes, Lo. <sighs> oh, I hate Malcolm <sighs> <sighs> You know... Will tells Lyra, so this is the cute thing we talked about at the top of the episode, my favorite. He's like, we should stick together. And she's like, okay. And she like stands up, grabs the omelet, you know, eats it like a burrito and she's walking around. She's like, "Hmm, I'm going to move in. And she kicks him out of his bed and she makes that noise of non-caring, like, hmm, when he goes downstairs to go find another bed. Yeah, and the thing that I really thought was interesting in that scene is there, there are two beds in that room. So my assumption yes. was that Lyra thought, oh, I'll take the small bed and be nice, and you can take the big bed. And then Will was like, oh, inappropriate. I have to sleep in a laundry room because he's more grown up than she is. Uh, and that was just very cute. That's so good. It's so cute. What a good boy. I think she, th- I, I can't tell if she thought she was being like, humble nice. and be like, I'll take the small bed and then he's like, that that one's mine but then she doesn't budge and then I'm like maybe not, but it's not just that it, it was, in a, I mean it's a big ass house, yeah. you know, why not yeah. use all the different rooms, so Will was probably thinking the same thing, he's like, god damn it, this is a big ass house, why can't she go to a different yeah. room yeah, you stubborn bullheaded little shit, they're both just stubborn, I think that was definitely like the first like, rah, ramming of horns uh, Pan's cute in this. He thinks that saying here's a good yeah, decision. Yeah, and then he sleeps on her arm, and they're so close and like cuddling when they're sleeping. And I'm very happy that they are close and cute. Yeah, it's sweet. It is good. It's an improvement. It is. Yeah. I also just love animals resting their heads yes. on your arm. It's, it's very awesome. Sweet. It's the best. I love animals. Ugh. We get a really well-constructed scene of Ruta Scotty flying for Katya, and it's intercut with Katya being tortured by Coulter, and you get to hear kind of what Katya is saying while we get Ruta flying through this horrible thunderstorm, and I think she's bringing the thunder at this point. Ruta is flying to Katya Sirka. She's flying there, and she can just, like, telepathically hear what she's saying, and I'm confused. I don't know if she could actually hear it, or if it was just supposed to be visually for effect but then you get the will scene later where he actually has a vision so i'm like i don't know to me it seemed like maybe it was just for effect and she wasn't hearing it it was but sergey says she has called out for yamba akashi's called out for death oh yeah 
Yeah. I mean, Serafina could hear the witch and, like, find her. So I think yeah. they at least have psychic-y, pine spray whatever. Yeah, maybe leaks, that's right? it. Like, they have to be able to locate each other. Maybe. I don't think we are ever going to know how witches work on that level, right? That would ruin the magic, personally. But but it must be pine spray mm. related. Like, roots. Yeah. Is Katya part of a, a, a Ruta's tribe? Because yes. maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Like, you can hear yeah, your other tribe tribal. members. Especially mm. the queen of that tribe can to that's protect true. them, but... You know, and I was going to say, we probably won't ever know, but we did get a lot of witch expansion in Serpentine mm. recently that Pullman released. So, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. We've learned a lot of stuff in that as well. And then we get to the meat of it. Mrs. Coulter questioning Katya. She asks uh, if the witches travel between worlds and what Katya told Lord Asriel. And Katya's like, whomst? But she doesn't actually say that because she's in the middle of being tortured. Um, Mrs. Coulter mentions that she knows that Azrael had a witch lover and that witches know things. So is the witch lover still Ruta? I think so. I think I mean, so. I think uh, the way it showed Ruta interchange with it mm. while she said, like, I know Azrael had a witch lover. Mm. And the fact that it's the witch lover that showed up to fuck her day up actually really worked here. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, and then... Uh, I really like the line that Mrs. Coulter says to Katya when she says, all you have is the information you carry. Share that information and we can become productive. And productive people, well, they are generally treated very well. And I'm just like, oh, capitalism. That, that, that's it. That's <laughs> yeah. the is the C for Coulter or is it for capitalism? Mm-hmm. Coulter pulls. <laughs> nope. Culturalism. I thought I had something. Cult- culturalism? I don't know. Coulter finally pulls the prophecy and a huge chunk of the, the cloud pine <laughs> out of the witch as Ruta makes for the ship. And we have dialogue back and forth between them where Katya is saying that the prophecy is about a girl named Lyra. She's known by another name. She says she will not betray the child of the prophecy. And then she asks for Yambayaka to come to her. Uh, and in between this, Coulter is asking what she knows of Lyra and asking her to tell her who Lyra Balakwa is. And then Ruta Scotty shows the fuck up, then delivers <laughs> Katya to Jambeaka, and then tells her to be at peace. And then on the way out, she fucks up a lot of other guards, then like goes up against the wall and then stabs the cardinal. And it's a very emotional, very fun, very superhero-y. Yeah, and I also just want to point out again, Yambeaka is a part of Sami religions. No, I will not shut up about (laughs) the Sami people in this episode. Yeah, we actually explored it a little bit in episode 9 of our Subtle Knife Run because of some of the stuff you've talked about and about kind of the female spirit in Sami shamanism, which is Akka. And Finnish and Estonian mythology actually has different variants as well. And it's interesting because there are three daughters of Madaraka, known as the mother of the tribe. There's Saraka, Juxaka, and Uksaka. And Saraka is the goddess of fertility and love. There's actually a special porridge that I won't knock anyone who's into it. It didn't look like my thing that gets eaten after a woman gives birth. What's in uh, it? It just like lumpyish as porridge with like stuff in it. I don't, know. I don't know. It just doesn't look good to me. I don't like porridge. I hate texture. Mm. Like that. Oh, I love porridge. Okay. I like tapioca, which is weird. Like, I like tapioca pudding, but I don't like porridge. I'll make you some of my porridge sometime. Maybe you'll like that, though. 
Girl, I love your porridge. <laughs> oh my god, never mind. Sorry, I messed everything up. So back to the three daughters. Juksaka is Aka with an arrow who protects children, and Uksaka is who shapes the fetus and the womb and gives the child their body. So all in all, Yambeaka translates to old women of the dead and was in charge of the underworld where departed spirits would walk on air. The entrance was thought of as the mouth of a river that gave into the ocean of ice, and that is where Yambeaka ruled from in that gloomy, gloomy realm. And there's a lot of really interesting mythology of the old woman of the dead uh, before the advent of Christianity. They thought death doesn't sever your spirit and body, and it kind of reminds me of Syrian tradition which is when a person sleeps, the spirit emerges in the form of a mouse or other animals. The souls often assume animals, etc. in this mythos. And I think a lot of this, again, has become so much more interesting Mm -hmm. since Serpentine released. But talk about that another day, another time, because Lo and I could go for hours on that. What does it mean? What does it mean? And then, of course, we get the money shot. This is another one of the really good scenes in this episode, other than the omelette scene, this is this is also right up there. Uh, the lithiometer is up on this like little pedestal thing in the middle of the room. There's light milling around it, and Pan tries to convince Lyra to read it. I want to point out quickly that this is something my partner noticed throughout uh, the Chitagaze scenes, including here, as you said about light milling around it, and uh, there's all this like debris or like fuzzy shit floating around Chitagaze. And my partner was like, oh, that's like the dust. Hmm. It's oh. dust floating around them. It wasn't dust, but it, it, it evokes that. So yeah. congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Officially him. a girl gone canon. <laughs> Let him know. <laughs> yes. This is the money shot, though. Like, this is why I watch mm. the series, right? Like, this is what I want. They know how to feed me because as soon as you show me that beautiful golden Alethea. Yes. Whoever works on the VFX and the, the props in this series, they're all doing great. You guys, keep Chloe. it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Give me my demon statue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the money shot. This is what I expect from his dark materials. When I watch it, yes, I want to see light and dust motes milling around the alethiometer with its beautiful brassy look shining in the sunlight and It's gorgeous. It is the shot that I want to see. Lyra says she wants to know who her father is and what his place is, or maybe if her mother's following her, or if Roger would ever forgive her, or what she should do now. And Pan's like, well, you can read it for a reason, Lyra, so read it. Let's find out. We need to find out about dust. Will simultaneously is downstairs trying to make the shower work, which he then does. Also through a window we see this. And then he comes upstairs and offers a shower to Lyra first. And she's like, I don't know what a shower is. You are just saying <laughs> made up words at me. And he's like, it's like a bath, but standing. And he's like, I'll take the first one. But after, if you'd like to use it, you can. And she's like, I don't need a stand up bath, do I? And then she smells within her shirt. She's like, eh, fine as I am. And I'm pretty sure that's Eliana. That's literally her. Maybe. I will neither confirm nor deny. Fine as um, I am. <laughs> uh, I love that Will brought a towel and soap. So hospitable, even though she stole his bed. Uh, but also in the scene where he's fixing the shower, uh, you were talking about earlier the framing of windows. That's shot, if I recall correctly, that's through a window as well when he's fixing the yes. shower. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's through that. It's really cool window because it's like not a see-through one. It actually has a pattern mm. on it. It's almost like... A fence-looking window. Also, huh. when I was watching that scene with my friend, she was like, 
should he be standing underneath the shower when he's fixing it? And I was like, you know what's going to happen. And then like a second later, he gets all wet. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 And then after this fantastic scene, Pan and Lyra go downstairs. They try to make Will an omelette. They're like, whatever. It's not that fucking hard, right? <laughs> and it is in the book. And the omelette does not go great. Yeah, no. Lyra, like, steps on it. Like, she breaks an egg and then she steps on it and smooshes it around on her foot to get rid of the broken egg evidence. And she's just, like, stomping eggy bits all over the floor. I'm, like, crying watching that. That was so much. I'm like, Lyra, honey, sweetie. No. no, no. It was the best. I'm like, just why would she think this would work? It's just the best. But also, like, I, I have specific memories of, like, baking when I was, like, a teenager and, like, dropping flowers, pumping or sugar on the floor and doing that to try to, like, not have to clean up and not let my mom know that I messed up the kitchen. Uh, but, like, not with an egg. Just with... Yeah, just not with, like, with an egg. salt or something. And that's sticky. When it dries up, it gets all, like, gross. God. Not with something like damp like that. Maybe she thought if I break it up, I can kick it, and then like the rest of it will evaporate. I don't know. I don't know. They fucking like have a, eggs in her Lyra world. Can't cook. Well, she's never done it ever. That's true. Yeah, Lyra can't. She's so helpless, and uh, it's like an ice cube. I do yeah. that with like an ice cube. Like if an ice cube melts, I'm just gonna be like, who did that? But an egg, Lyra, get some responsibility in I your life. I don't do that with ice cubes. But like, I so the fun part about ice cubes, especially if you have an animal, which I guess Pan isn't really, but the fun part about ice cubes is they're on the floor and the animals love them. Oh they yeah, bat them I have around. not tried this with my cat. I must do so. Oh, you should try it. Yeah, I put uh, ice cubes in my cat's water sometimes for fancy effect. Push the ice cubes around so that they see it slides across the floor. I don't know if Tutiki will like it, but mm, my dog. I will, will like try it. and report back. So Will is watching her as she makes this omelet through the floorboard. Guys, he's watching her through a floorboard, like he's watching her through a window. Oh. Yeah, gets sad, bitches. He opens oh. the floorboard and it's like I'm watching my girlfriend from afar make an omelet. Also, he's seeing what a terrible job he's doing. He's like, shit, I'm going to have to eat that, aren't I? He's like, oh, is it worth it? Because every guy, like, you know, if a girl makes you food and it looks like that, I don't know. That's pretty. I'm just saying, girls, guys, let me know about your girls that make omelets like that and what you think. But he eats it like that. He eats it. He's straight up. Things we do for love. Jamie Lannister's got nothing on that. (laughs) He eats a fucking If if there's the big shells. parts of shells, you can, like, take them out. But if they're broken down into, like, super small things... I think can't. they were broken down also. They were all, you can only get so many big parts, you know? <laughs> she was, like, smooshing it with her spatula in there. She's like, see, look! And it didn't cross her mind that she could break it once and empty the contents. Like, that's the problem here. It did not cross her mind that one break would let her empty the content of no. the egg... Or she was like, or maybe she thought that maybe it'll soften. She didn't know how mm. eggs work. Because, like, how is she not like, interesting, my omelet didn't have anything crunchy. That girl is going to go get to the Mulefa and they're going to be like, you stay away from our <laughs> seed pods, Lyra. You stay the fuck away. God. 
Well, they discuss the Tour de l'Angeli and what could be inside of it, and Will takes a photo of this tower. Lyra is running ahead of him. So we discuss this a little over on our Discord, our Patreon server, and our patron friend Cassidy mentioned that this picture that Will takes has Lyra in it, likely, and it could be used in the end of the series, maybe, sadly, right? Like Will looking back at this photo of Lyra. Saddest. Yeah. And Eliana mentioned it parallels the Coulter photos from earlier, right? The pictures of Lyra from the beginning of the episode. And then I came across this thought that what if Will uses it when he's looking for Lyra, when Coulter's taken her? Yeah, that makes sense, saying, have you seen this girl? Yeah, have you seen this tiny, small monster? <laughs> she stole my bed. God. <laughs> Bitch stole my bed. In Gave my me heart. broken eggs. It's awful. And a broken heart. Okay. <laughs> broken eggs, broken heart. <laughs> then they come across their first victims of the specters. Lyra kindly pushes the man that they came upon, guides him away, and speaks to him gently. Yeah, this reminded me a bit of the Harpies, no name, in The Amber Spyglass and how she tells them stories. And of course, in Freeing the Dead as well, there's a lot of foreshadowing going on here. There's that kindness in her eyes in this, and it's very soft and very sad. And Daphne Keene did a really great job in this scene. Yeah, and like we mentioned above the victims of the specters, Pullman has said that this is a sort of metaphor for depression or self-hatred. But to me, the way it's portrayed here in the show so seems more severe than that. I mean, the person like looks like a zombie, basically. And I think maybe another read of it could be that it's a psychological disability of sorts, maybe. I don't want to like diagnose anything, but I feel like the way these people are treated by their society is similar to how people with some sort of disability might be treated in our world as less than human, as we talked about before. Anyway, I have some thoughts, as I often do, about this sort of topics. My thoughts are about which lives are valued in a colonial capitalist, ableist society. And also, like, specifically in this situation, what happens with the people who have been attacked by defectors? Are there, like, care homes for them? I want there to be care homes for them, where they're treated and valued, but I don't think there is. So... Once you've gotten this disability of sorts in this world, uh, as a result of the colonial capitalist society, you're just disposable. And just like to, to clarify what I mean with colonial capitalist society, in this world, the rich, fancy, science people have gone into other worlds, literally into a new world, getting resources, and then messed up their own world because of consequences of that. So just, 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 just a thing to think about. And I think one way of thinking about how these people are treated as disposable is by thinking through what Michel Foucault termed biopolitics. Uh, and Foucault writes that while at previous times in, in our history, regions such as kings and queens have had a power over their subjects' lives or death, such as like capital punishment, they literally can decide to kill them or not. But in the sort of contemporary world, the state's power more lies in the power to support life or let them perish. And Foucault describes their current time as one of biopower, where the state controls our bodies to make them as uh, efficient or productive as possible for capitalism. And then other researchers have sort of expanded on this, and one of them is Jasper Poir, and she's written about what she calls the bio-necropolitical collaboration, which she describes as something that is about how 
inclusion or exclusion of certain bodies or people in society indirectly produces life and death. So certain bodies get support to live and thrive, while other bodies, such as disabled bodies or bodies from the global south, is not considered worth investing in. So, for instance, in our world, society supports white, able-bodied people living in the global north, but black people working in mines in Congo to get minerals for smartphones, they don't get that support. Those bodies and those people are seen as expendable. Society is fine with them being harmed and becoming disabled. And, I mean, it's not like a one-to-one parallel, but I think you can see the alchemist of the Tower of the Angel as a colonial capitalist regime of sorts, who in their attempt to get resources from the new worlds, sacrificed everyday people in their own world. And once these people have been targeted by specters and sort of become disabled, they're just worthless and disposable. It's interesting because last series in series one, obviously the focus was the gobblers and the children being taken, uh, which, I mean, you see that in a lot of different motifs in media, right? Uh, Something that comes to mind is the runaways, for example, that they're uh, cannibalizing these bodies that no one cares about, these people that are, you know, poor or on the streets or addicts and don't have connections or family and utilizing them. And it's seen here that the specters here don't make that discrimination, right? They don't have prejudice against who they affect besides, are you old enough to be affected by me? Uh, In series one, Lyra's life is saved because she's the daughter of Coulter and she's about to be severed and Coulter shows up last second and she is saved. But there's no saving if you don't have the knife, the subtle knife, as we know. If you don't have Asa Hader, like, there is absolutely no saving for you, and we'll see Tulio, of course, in later episodes be devoured by the specters and be cannibalized, but I think that's a really great way to look at it, because where series one, you had a look at these expendable bodies that were absolutely targeted for a reason, like, these people were being targeted and their children were being taken for a reason, and that series two has changed in a way, right? Like, now it's just, this is taking over people and rendering them quote-unquote useless. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those are great observations of two sides on the same issue. I think for the way that the world is now, it's kind of hard for them to have homes because everything's just kind of... Yeah. <laughs> it's descended into anarchy after Azrael released like a bazillion, basically, specters. Mm-hmm. But they don't Wait, know that yet. Are you saying that right. the rich white man had an impact on other people and like their climate and social circumstances when he was trying to do his thing? Yes, absolutely. Okay, in his in his own war, yes. Oh, okay. His personal little war. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So after Lyra uh, gently goads a man who has been attacked by a specter, and they see that, they hear a cat being hurt. Then Will saves the cat from the kids, and the kids turn violent fast. Yeah, and this has really big Lord of the Flies vibes, as I know you've talked about in the book episodes. Yeah, and okay, I guess if I'm going to level with you both, and if I had to choose one thing that disappointed me, yes, the critiques begin, so everyone stop listening now, all the negative stuff comes out, no, I'm just kidding. This was a good scene, but it was not how I imagined it, and I don't know that it had as much weight as it does in the book for me of building these kids up. And I know that they had a huge operation with these children. They had like 70 children there. Uh, Daphne Keene talked about the first day on set, the first day they finally came back from filming in other locations to come build on the set that they had made. And the set had not existed yet. 
So when they came back, it was like tons of kids everywhere and this beautiful, huge island and like that they had all these kids being led probably for the big scenes being filmed at Tour de Angeli and when they make their escape out of Chitigatse. But I just didn't feel the weight here. Like the books does, mm-hmm. it does have huge Lord of the Flies vibes and it makes you realize like, holy shit, these kids are just wild. Like they just have now grown wild. They have no structure uh, all because of the specters that have taken over the city. And I don't know that I felt that weight here. That's all. And they don't explain why they attacked the cat. Because in the books, it's like, yeah, that's... in the books, it's like, oh, cats are evil. But here they're just like, oh, we, we're having fun. We're attacking a cat. And, and I mean, it moves on, obviously. Uh, Will gets the cat and it's a huge nod toward Kerjava. But uh, I, I just think it, that especially that setup, that's what the setup is there for. For them to be like, cats are evil, cats are bad. Like, oh, well, guess whose demon is a cat in the end that comes out of him? Um, I don't know. But it was cool to see Pan. He, he turns into a wolverine to scare them off. I wish it were a leopard. It's fine. I'll move on. Whatever. Yeah, I, I read on IMDb that this is apparently a nod to Daphne Keen being in Logan, um, which is fun, I guess. But it would make more sense with a leopard. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is sweet, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, wolverines are smaller than you'd think. Just yeah, like I expected Man. it to look like Stelmaria and Sk- the, the scene didn't go how I wanted it, is all I'm yeah. saying. I'm sorry. No, but <laughs> I agree with what you were saying in those critiques. Like, um, I know I've heard people say that they felt that the pacing was quite fast in this episode. And they, we do cover a lot of ground. And I, th- mm-hmm. I, I would agree the pacing is fast. But I think it is especially so here. As you said, it doesn't have that weight. They don't linger on it long enough. You don't feel like Will's actually in danger mm-hmm. in that moment, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Lyra was supposed to save him. Like, that was the point that Lyra and Pam were like, not our Will. Yeah, like, he doesn't get into it with any of the kids. You don't see them really, you know, if you film that, it, it would be, and granted, they do things that their way, but it would be within that circle of kids and looking out at them. You know, as they're, like, kind of threatening him and Will having to reckon with, like, oh, shit, do I pick this cat? Like, picking your battles, does he pick, like, the cat or does he pick and dealing with all these kids or does he let it go? And that kind of shows his values. You know, he's grinning and holding the cat and they pet it. And and I think that's pivotal because this scene, right, and the preceding one with Lyra, they go together. They're back to back. Even though the scene of Lyra encountering someone who's been attacked by specters um, and that happening so early on is a show-only scene. But I think it works well together with this Will scene. Though, again, I I agree with your critique. I do think that they should have given it more stakes, right? Because it displays those key character traits for both of them that complement one another. It's Lyra's compassion. Um, And as you've said, this plays role in the later story and then it's will's role as this protector figure and we don't get the stakes then mm-hmm. of what it means to be a protector when lyra arrives so soon but there is that parallelism to their stories um and setting these moments side by side that they carry through in this episode yeah not bad just a weaker scene is all uh wasn't uh, I, I was just not I'm disappointed as a super fan, as a fan of the show and a fan of just watching media and having something interesting on the TV for 45 minutes. It was a good scene. I don't care. But, you know, just me as a fan who reads the books and breaks them down line by line, chapter by chapter, exhaustingly, apparently. You know, it was sad in that manner. But 
I mean, it, things were a little fast in general, yeah. so. And we'll talk about some of that pacing soon, but first, Coulter strikes a deal with Father McPhail in the next scene. Yes, McPhail, as Lo would like us to make sure we're reiterating, and proposes a coup if the Cardinal dies. She pledges her loyalty to McPhail's leadership, and she's talking him up, making him feel like a big guy, and she's like, I'll personally tend to the Cardinal's wounds. I'll make it my sin as a first act of service. Yes, and also dustiest cushion things. Will yeah, there is some stuff that Eliana cannot hear about because she will be spoiled. So I'm just so Moving pure. On. I don't understand murder plots, <laughs> dustiest cushion things. <laughs> <laughs> so after that scene, you know, once more we come back to Chirigase and the lights are flickering. Specters are strolling Chirigase like they own the city. Uh, Will and Lyra talk. They discuss the differences between their worlds. They're sitting on separate stairs. They talk about that difference between Unbaric versus Electric, Electrum versus Amber, and then they find that they have a similarity, finally, and that they both have and are from an Oxford. Though I do think that's changed, right? Isn't Will actually from... Winchester. Yeah, Winchester. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think it's fine that they're both from Oxford. Whatever, it's It simpler. simplifies, yeah. It's it simplifies it for the audience. And it's actually really adorable, right, that... Uh, I rewatched it and she is all, I have to go find Dust. And he's like, Lyra, wait, don't you get? We're from the same place, girl. And it's really cute because she's just like all theologians and, oh, I got to do this. And I know he's like still stuck on it. She's like already three miles ahead. And he's still like, Lyra, you're from Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) It's very cute. Will's just like, I'm still on that, you know, Uh, very cute. She plans to go to his Oxford to learn about dust and asks if he'll take her there. And he's like, kind of not safe for me to go for some reasons. But, you know, I need to check up on some stuff. So we'll pull through. Lyra will pull up to Oxford. So at first light, they're going to go. They agree. And she says to him, oh, my God, I almost like died at this line. It was so good. You do have a demon. And one day I'll see it. Oh, yeah, you will. Foreshadowing. D. Foreshadowing for the demon. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> wow, lewd. I guess they've aged them up in this at least. Well, so. so. <laughs> Watch. Jack Thorne's biggest artistic like sin of the whole series is instead of like a cute kiss in the third book, he makes them fuck. Just kidding. It's gonna get dusty. Yeah, I don't think he's gonna do that. It's BBC, I don't, right? No, it's yeah, it's gonna be far too pure for that. I know he won't. I'm just saying ridiculous things that we're gonna put in our episode. Lyra <laughs> <sighs> takes a shower, finally. <laughs> Dirty ass. And Will pulls out his green envelope and he decides to go on a walk to read through his own dark materials. Yes, and one of the most important scenes in this whole episode is happening here because while Lyra is taking a shower, Pan is a red panda and he's sniffing Lyra's dirty stuff and he's just so adorable. And uh, I'm just gonna uh, usurp Chloe's demon corner because I had to Google <laughs> what uh, red panda symbolizes and according to the super professional site called the astrology web it symbolizes gentleness compromise and patience 
The symbolic meaning also includes balance, independence, security, as well as nonchalance, while representing tree wisdom, tree divination, and recognizing the individual tree spirit. So I'm like, this mm. is kind of pan, like, it's the pan part of Lyra. And also, like, tree stuff. Yes. There's so much tree stuff. Lots of tree stuff. The independence. Yeah. yeah. The pan the pan, duh. I also really appreciate that Lowe's like, listen up, MRFers, the most important four seconds of the entire episode is happening. <laughs> I mean, it is. And if you yeah. like red pandas, I want to recommend um, this documentary about that actually uh, heavily focuses on the red panda. It's called Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a lot in there about uh, the red panda. It plays a big role. I have a couple questions, maybe a critique, but you know what? I'll save them for later. So yes, Will is reading through his materials, and Lyra decides to read her dark materials, not the podcast. You should listen to them, though. Her and Pan decide the alethiometer is telling the truth, but often it's not the whole truth. Pan's like, well, what have you asked it about Will? And so she does. It tells her that he's a murderer, but a good murderer. And simultaneously, Will, while reading his envelope starts to see a flash of the subtle knife he's a hater yeah and he's sitting by a tree when he's doing this so i'm like is this another world tree because he's maybe sort of traveling the spirit world and i thought about if it was maybe a connection to his dad like his dad sending him with visions but i don't know if that's just me bullshitting Mm. but also just like faith destiny stuff But yeah, I have some more thoughts that me and Chloe might talk about later. (laughs) Lyra tells Pan while Will is walking toward the tower that he is connected to this place. And he's a good murderer, as I said. They both have something to do here. Not just Lyra, but Will as well. Yeah. And so both of these scenes together is another moment of that parallelism that I was talking about earlier. um, Where you can see what they're doing converges um, and it does a good job of bringing their stories together and tightening that bond uh, using that kind of storytelling. And uh, yes, I, I did note uh, that Will was under a tree and I thought that was interesting, especially with the all the tree of knowledge stuff that's going on in this story and with that green envelope symbolizing or standing in for that knowledge um, as he's there and he's about to find it all out, but then a different kind of knowledge uh, approaches him while perhaps from the dust even, you know, because Lyra's consulting the alethiometer at the same time, which is another source of that fruit of knowledge, and both of them have questions, and you know, again, it's just something that that they've structured well with both of them doing that at the same time. And I also, you know, brief pause and moment admiring this little city square in the cafe behind Will. Um, I don't know that it is, but there's, like, vibes that it gives me that reminds me of Van Gogh's painting, that cafe terrace at night. Yeah. That's so... It, I thought about that, too, in general, with the Chitigatse scenes, and I think that you're onto something there. It very much so represented it. And that Folio Society version of the art mm. from uh, the books that you talk about for the intro earlier, it reminded me of that as well, with that just the way the trees are and the gold sparkly look to it in the dust. It was very shimmery, very dark, yes. very beautiful. Some some really great cinematography there as everything becomes shrouded and yeah, it just looked nice. 
But it doesn't look nice for long, right? Because then it pans over to Will looking up at the tower and a specter materializes behind him and he stares at the Torre degli Angeli and he has no clue. And I'm just like, Will, he has his ear pods in. Put the <laughs> ear pods out, Will. Somebody get him. Someone uh, tell him. Oh, shit. <sighs> that was a way to end an episode. Like, what a way to come in on a bang with a first episode and go out with a bang. They Yes. That's how you do a first episode adapting a book. Like, that is it. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was a strong episode, and uh, a lot of it leans on the chemistry between our two main characters. I think does a great job of that. They are both main characters, right? I feel like, you know, I was reading through comments on a recommendation thread somewhere or something, um, the Aswaf subreddit, and people, this one uh, reader felt like they were betrayed. They felt like it seemed like Pullman did a bait and switch where Will was the main character. I'm like, I don't think so. Nah. Will doesn't become the main character. They're both the main characters, and Lyra mm-hmm. is a driving force, especially in the third book. She's the reason why they go to the underworld. She's the reason why they do a window. Her parents are a main focus of it, and then, of course, her story carries out through the other books. So um, they've, they've done a great job of setting both of them up here and, and showing what they're like together and showing their characters. Yeah, and I think the way they did it in the show with introducing Will in season one made it less abrupt here in season mm-hmm. two. So I think, yeah, that worked really well for me, I think. Well, what's next after this episode? That was just obviously episode one. But after this, I'm curious to see what we're going to get in the next episode. We only have seven episodes total since they kind of had to chop off that Asriel bottle episode they were planning on doing And it seems like we covered about three chapters in this episode, right? The cat and the hornbeam trees among the witches in a children's world. I'm guessing that the next chapter and episode that'll be covered through the chapters will probably cover chapters four through five, if not maybe part of chapter six, which is trepanning, airmail paper, and lighted flyers. This would cover a visit to Oxford with the museum, Boreal, Mary Malone, Lee Scoresby starting his search for Stanislaus Grumman. And there's also been a production note that we are going to meet Will's grandparents, who only appear in the lantern slides, though I think this could be in the next episode or episode three while Lyra looks for her theologian or whatever she can find to get some sort of idea. And that lantern slide is Will and his mother visiting an elderly seeming couple in a large house and getting a cold welcome. He was puzzled. He was too young to understand the conversation, the murmuring voices, his mother's tears. Later, all he remembered was the contempt on the older woman's face, the feeling these two regarded his beloved mother as dirt, and the savage resolution never to let her be exposed to that brutality again. He was six. He would have killed him if he could. Very much later, he realized they were his father's parents. I do think that's something they have to add in. To give him kind of something to do, maybe, while Lyra's off searching and dealing with Mary Malone. So I wonder if that might be his subplot during that. And then maybe they call Boreal's crew on him, is my guess. I'm guessing they have some sort of magisterium connection we're going to learn about. Yeah, and just, first of all, why would you read that and make me cry? That was very (laughs) rude. I'm upset. Um, But also, returning to something I sort of mentioned earlier... I'm wondering about like the implications of the fact that they made Will Black in this ab- adaptation. And like just to be clear, I really like that they have done that. But 
as someone who's like interested in these social structures, I think that that should matter that they have done that, made that decision. For instance, here with uh, this grandmother uh, having this look of contempt on her face in the lantern slide, will that translate to racism in this adaptation? And also, like, when Will is just, like, running around Oxford doing shit, will it matter more that the fact that he is a, a young black man? Or, well, he's a boy, but people see it will probably see him as a young black man. Um, because, I mean, it's harder to be invisible in the world when you're part of a marginalized group that is made, like, hyper-visible in the world. As we all know, uh, it's hard for young black men to be treated well in this racist white supremacy world i'm curious how they handle it i think they'll do a good job with it the one thing i do think is that having will be outright stated to be black in the show or having him physically be black is i I mean obviously i don't think pullman probably had it in mind when he was writing it right back back in the 90s i don't know if that's what he was thinking but the way will is written and coded doesn't seem to be a huge change, no. especially when he comes to tell Lyra. Like, I think it'll reinforce a lot of what we already have in the story of him telling Lyra, hey, you have to act like this if you don't want to get caught by cops. Hey, you have to do this. Will has had to live it. He's had to learn it. His character already had that in the book. So I think it just reinforces some of this really well. No, that's true. Because you have Lyra being very, like, going up to police people Mm -hmm. and talking to them. And obviously, Will would not do that because that would be more of a risk. So, yeah, you're right about that. And his mother is not just black, but also disabled, as you've been mentioning, is a... There's a lot that's going to come into there. As we see, she's very easily preyed upon in series one. She was so easily preyed upon by Boreal because of these vulnerabilities in her mental kind of place that she's been in. And yeah, I can't imagine that the grandparents are going to be anything good or nice. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if how they'll play it out. I don't know what it'll be. They could make the grandparents racist. I don't think mm-hmm. that they need to, um, you know. Yeah. I think that it's not always something where we need to always portray that trauma for people of color. Oh, that's true. Um, regardless, um, on on any show, and but it, all the things that you're saying about the realities and the social dynamics are true, and I think it'll bring a different dynamic when they try to tell the lie of like, oh yeah, this is my sister Lizzie, <laughs> or whatever, and people will question that, and that is something that um of course happens with mixed race families yeah. mm-hmm. in our world. Uh, and Will does technically exist in our world. Not yeah. not in real life, but like the world that he is from is our world. <laughs> yeah, and Oxford necessarily may not be the most melting pot place, but I mean, the UK yeah. is very, very, very strong variety of different people. So yeah. I think that we won't see it specifically focused on, but I do think that it's going to reinforce those ideas that are already in the text. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested to see how they play it out. And I think that, like, yeah. obviously, race and class have correlations with one another, right? And um, a strong relationship. And so I don't know if that's going to be a part of it as well. Like, my understanding, to an extent, of British culture is that class can be a much more pronounced in terms of the dynamics than it is necessarily in the U.S. Obviously, class is a big part here, but it's mm-hmm. not always, like, something people think of in terms of like who you associate with right 
Mm. Mm-hmm. There's like play- there are spaces where people mix more easily. Yeah. And that's supposed to be like a big part of American culture. As to whether it happens in practice or not, debatable, but it is like supposed. <laughs> but like it is a yeah. big po- right, it's a thing that's touted about American culture. Yeah, unless you move out of a city where you're forced into the melting pot and you can go live in the suburbs on a lake or on a huge lot of land that's an acre or so of land and be racist. Yeah, and I mean, just thanks for bringing that up, Eliana, about how we don't always have to watch Black Pain. That's obviously important to remember. And I think it's sort of hinted in this quote that Chloe read about how they go to this big house and that like reads to me as upper middle class or upper class as well and just if you think about how someone from a very like proper white english family would treat a black woman who's disabled and perhaps i don't know what background she comes from but maybe she doesn't have the same class background it's not clear but maybe they they just think that no she's not being proper she's not acting respectably or whatever, and then they're being rude to her because that's unfortunately how the word world works. People think that you have to act proper and respectable and whatever, and if you don't, then you're just trash. I do want to see where this plays out as far as what we learn about Jopari, John Perry, because I mean, you think about his character, and we'll discuss him as the series goes on, this series, this season, but you think about the character, and like obviously he had opportunities and had money afforded to him. So they have to be upper class because he was a scholar. He was a well-known scholar. Like everyone knows who Stanislaus Grumman is. The name is on everyone's mouth. And he ends up kind of forsaking this wonderful college education. He probably was given by his parents uh, to go, you know, walk through a window and walk into this other world to other worlds and become a shaman. And I think that's an interesting perspective to look at a lot of that and I hope that's what they're going to do is give us some Joe Pari background as well in this scene with Will and the grandparents that does come to light I think that'll be its best use that we can kind of understand the family Joe Pari came from his education where he went with it etc I just find that very interesting yeah I also wonder if we're going if we're going to see Joe Pari's actor, uh, if we're going to see Andrew Scott actually as Jean Perry like in this episode. I mean, what we've seen of him so far in some of the trailers, uh, he kind of looks like a bit of a hippie, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wonder like if the parent, his parents, feel that Elaine has torn him away from that mm-hmm. world, his path. Yeah, yeah, things like That's that. That's kind of what I think too. Like that in was the Princess of- Diaries. Mm-hmm. Um, or Lily and Rufus and Gossip Girl. Yeah, oh, I hate Rufus Humphrey though. Um, <laughs> Time. Anyway, so like if that's part of it, but also I, I'd just be interested if they start bringing in Andrew Scott already mm. in the episode. Mm-hmm. Stanislaus Grumman like feels like this thing that Lee's like learning more about, chasing after for a lot of it. But also I'm like, I mean, how much does Andrew Scott cost, right? Like, could they afford to put him in in all these episodes or not? Like, that's what part of our issue with James Mac- McAvoy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Other than like scheduling because he's an in-demand yeah. actor. But I'm just curious. Well, that is something we will definitely get discussing as the series goes on. And I'm very excited to see it in the next week's episode. But for now, Eliana, we have to kick you out because we have to rush through a dusty discussion real quick with some secret Commonwealth, Outer Works, spoiler stuff. So if you would, Eliana, take a step out and Lo and I are going to take it away. Okay, nobody fuck up because I'm not editing this portion. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. All right. 
Lo, I am so excited that you are here for a dusty discussion. This is very wild. I never thought we'd have this beautiful day. <laughs> Still no Eliana, but... <laughs> no, this is super fun because, I mean, obviously we've talked privately about this. A lot of DMs back and forth. But it's really fun <laughs> to present this to the world now as well. Yeah, this is pretty much what our inbox looks like on Twitter.com with each other, because we are constantly talking about the Secret Commonwealth and the other Book of Dust, Lavelle Sauvage, and now Serpentine, this short novella that Pullman has put out. And it felt like there were a lot of magisterium parallels from the Secret Commonwealth to this episode. They are for sure reading the Books of Dust, as we know. Yeah, and I, I sort of hinted at that earlier, but that take of... <laughs> I hinted at a lot of stuff, um, but specifically, <laughs> I hinted at how this takeover that Mrs. Coulter and Father MacPhail has, that seems uh, very similar to the one in The Secret Commonwealth. But uh, unlike her dear brother, Mrs. Coulter can head it, head it herself because patriarchy. Um, but yeah, the death of the cardinal really reminded me of the death of the patriarch in The Secret Commonwealth. Um, where Marcel Delamere uses that to seize control. Um, and then also the way that Father McPhail discusses how they should sort of spin the revelation of these multiple worlds. That also reminds me of what Delamere says about how they could handle dust. Um, so I thought I might read that passage from the Secret Commonwealth. Uh, and this is when Delamere talks to his dear mother about how they should handle the rose business and dust and everything. And um, he proposes some different options. And he says, there are several things we could do. First, we could suppress all knowledge of it by rigorous investigation, by ruthless force. That would work for a while, but knowledge is like water. It always finds gaps to leak through. There are too many people, too many journals, too many places of learning who have already known something about it. The second possibility is to go to the root of the problem and wipe it out. There is something unexplained in that desert in Central Asia. The roses will not grow anywhere else, and we don't know why. Well, we could send a force to go there and destroy the place, whatever it is. There is a third option. We could uh, embrace the facts. The roses exist. They show us something we've always denied, something that contradicts the deepest truth that we know about the 40 and these creations. There is no doubt about that. So we could admit, admit it boldly, contradict the teachings of so many millennia, proclaim a new truth. Revealing the truth in the way I've described would not work. There are too many habits of thought institutions that are committed to the ways things are and always have been. The truth would be swept away at once. Instead, we should delicately, delicately and subtly undermine the idea that truth and facts are possible in the first place. Once the people have become doubtful about the truth of anything, all kinds of things will be open to us. Ha 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 government ha 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 election <laughs> This is funny, it's fiction, right? This is yes. fiction, Lo, this is funny. We're yes. laughing, we're laughing, everyone. This is a fun day. 
And Delamere, it's interesting because even before the patriarch, Delamere gets laws passed to reduce his council size. He strips rights that protect Lyra. And then by chapter 14 at the Magisterium Conference, he bargains and manipulates to form his own small council that is allowed to take action quicker and cut through red tape faster. So that's how we get St. Simeon as the first leader of the High Council. And then, as you mentioned, he is murdered at Simeon's coronation in Constantinople. He and a bunch of his other priestmen are slaughtered by a bunch of men in white. And then Marcel is installed as new president and he gets his power. The show definitely had these vibes going on, though for very different reasons. And there are also some more visual parallels with Marcel in this episode that I think you'll like. Olivier Bonneville, Mm -hmm. Gerard's son, notices in the books that Delamere has an obsession with Lyra that's unhealthy and out of the natural bounds of the Magisterium being obsessed with a little girl. He notices it and uh, it's when he's holding a photo of Lyra and trying to read the alethiometer, he ends up seeing Marcel's room instead and ends up seeing a photo collection of Lyra. Creepy. So he sees Marcel's photo collection and his photos of Lyra. Coulter holding these photos of Lyra. Both of these people, Coulter, his sister, and Marcel, uh, These two siblings have this unhealthy obsession with Lyra. We see for Coulter, it's kind of a natural unhealthy obsession, right? As her maternal figure, her mother that was not there. Uh, And we see for Delamere that it's unhealthy in the other way because he wants power. I think in the end, and this is a totally other topic, but Olivier will abandon the Magisterium probably and turn sides more than likely to the good side in the last moments, especially because Marcel is sending CCD men after him, but... I digress. I found that interesting with the photos. It definitely reminds me of Marcel's obsession of Lyra. Yeah, that that family is not very healthy in general. (laughs) Uh, They they should get some therapy uh, and maybe then they wouldn't destroy (laughs) the world. I don't know. Um, But yeah, uh, I also had another point that I wanted to run by you, which is this tree symbolism. and uh, in in the episode, we get a lot of trees, like we've discussed, uh, both with witches, uh, and we know they have a connection to the other world, um, and then with Will, and that ma- both those scenes made me think about Yggdrasil and how it connects different worlds in Norse mythology. Um, and Will also gets this vision that we discussed, uh, that maybe sent from his dad, maybe some dusty things, Maybe it's destiny. I don't know. But it's sitting by a tree anyway. Um, And (laughs) I don't know what it means. But maybe there's some symbolism there. Um, Hmm. And then also like just that moment of him having this magical connection uh, is interesting. Because I think they're trying to make him more magical. uh, More like Lyra in that way. And him having these sort of premonitions or maybe spirit world travels could set up some things that you've talked about, possibly. You know, interesting interesting you say that. Actually, now that you say that, I didn't think about it, but this is, uh, we could have left this in the main episode had I thought about it early enough, but the fever dreams of Joe Pari and Lee in the end. That's what this reminds me of, that he is reading it and he gets that flash of the subtle knife. Uh, It it seems that maybe his dad 
was giving the the person seeking the knife a vision, mm-hmm. though his dad didn't really realize it was him, obviously, or I don't know, something. But there has to be some sort of connection, and they have to strengthen it. And I do think that they're going to build up, because we obviously, we don't know that it's his dad yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know, but we don't know it's his dad yet. And I, I think that they're going to build that connection for the viewer a little more. We do know in the show, technically, I guess they showed the picture of him, but we just don't know what Lee's searching. We don't know Stanislaus Grumman is his dad. Uh, we don't know anything about this for Will. So I think they need to build that mystical, magical connection for Will up because, I mean, doctors, medicine men, mm-hmm. shamans, uh, that's what he goes on to be. He goes on to be a doctor. So it stands to reason that he could have a little bit of this medicinal magic like his father does in him and i do wonder like all this tree symbolism there's not as much in the book of this tree symbolism there's a little bit but there's not as much tree symbolism in the books so this has been really great visually Mm -hmm. i I think that uh we might be onto something there and i just think look the deal is is that pullman refuses to outright deny that will (laughs) will come back he, ref- he won't say it. He doesn't say no. He has never said no. Every time he is asked, he has never said no. And recently there was a Waterstones event and me and Eliana watched. It was a webinar. Pullman was asked what the importance of the roses in the secret commonwealth are. And when he was asked what the importance of roses are, he responded with something that completely just do to do misdirects us. And he goes... Well, if you remember, in the last chapter of the Amber Spyglass, there is a doodle of roses that have their heads facing away from each other. Roses very much symbolize Will and Lyra's relationship. They are very symbolic of them, and those roses have their heads turned away in order to show the parting of the roses. And he's like, so they are definitely very important to the story. Interesting. Now, all this happened within a 10-minute span that he would not say Will's not coming back. He also said he wants to write a book about Will, a novella, and he plans on it. And then he also said roses are symbolic of Will and Lyra. Do with that what you want, mm. Lo. Do with that what you want. Also, hmm. uh, hmm. the subtle knife has rosewood in the handle. And that can mm-hmm. cut between worlds. So, you know. Oh, yup. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. So we'll find out. I I am curious how he can bring him back in. The only way that I think it'll work is with the other way of reading Mm. the alethiometer, right? The the new way of reading the alethiometer, the rose oil, uh, and Lyra, and the Blue Hotel, and Pan, and all these demons. Like, there's got to be a connection there that drags them all together. It's a recipe, you know? Throw it all in a bowl, and we'll get somewhere. And speaking of recipes, uh, just, like, to, to be super clear... Immortality, fruit, trees. Maybe. I mean. Is she immortal? Is she immortal, though? I think she might be a lord. I, I, she might be immortal. Yeah. Yeah. I it makes sense. Well, these are a lot of thoughts, and I have a lot more to think about when it comes to this. So let's bring Eliana mm. back. Uh, I think that she can. Eliana can come on back to us now and remain unspoiled for the Secret Commonwealth, although she is getting through a lot of it. She is. She's very... She's close. She's getting there. Chloe knows that I am because I scream at her. (laughs) I was so... You know what? You sent me a message about something that I did not know you already knew about, and I was like, oh my god, so I can talk to you about this much of the book now? Yes! Yes. 
So it's happening. It's happening. Well, hopefully we'll have more progress to tell Lo about soon for Eliana so that Lo is ready to write their essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but Lo is like Eliana don't finish don't finish I have so much so many essays planned I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> what about what about the essays that you have coming up soon on the horizon well um, the next thing will probably be uh, the essay I'm doing with Amy Blackfire about Lysa Omar in A Song of Mason Fire and then I'm going to get started on this historic materials essay, I think. And I also have some other vague plans about the Song of Ice and Fire things. Maybe Liana, maybe the Night of the Laughing Tree, maybe something else about how virginity is, is a social construct and a part of patriarchy. I don't know. Oh, I'm excited to hear that. Those two sound really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also for, like, I don't know. quite often rambling feminist thoughts on Twitter, if you want to catch those. That is load links uh, with underscores between all the words. And then you can find my essays whenever I actually get time for them uh, on loadedlinks.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for coming on with us, Lo. Uh, your essays on Nordic influence have obviously been really, really instrumental. Dark instrumental darkly instrumental well wow. uh to us <laughs> in our discussions i mean our dust cushions we uh yes. we've had many good discussions a lot of them due to you so thank you so much for all of your great emails and for coming on to chat with us all the time whether it's just a quick message to me saying hey what do you think about this thought and then i expand it with eliana and we just talk about you for an hour <laughs> i think it's really fun to actually have you here in the almost flesh the skype flesh so thanks again for joining us Well, thank you for having me. It was super fun to talk to you about this. Uh, And thank you so much for inviting me. I was like literally jumping up and down when I got your email. And I'm like, oh my God, they want to talk to me? Well, yeah. I want to kick off the whole season with you. Would have been smarter to have you on for the Epsala episode, but I, not on my game. Well, hopefully this won't be the last time. So we'll have you on again for sure. We have lots of His Dark Materials to cover in the future. I mean, like we said, Lots there's how many chapters in the Secret Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for listening. If you found your way here to listen to us for the first time, be sure to subscribe to us over on a platform where you listen to podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, you name it, we're there. Yes. And, of course... Be sure to follow us on social media if you want to keep up with all of that. You can find us on Twitter at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you'd like, you can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com, as Lo has done with us. And of course, be sure to follow Lo on Twitter as well. And uh, yeah, you can tweet or message us. Yes, we'd love to hear your thoughts and what you're excited to see in the rest of the series for Series 2 of His Dark Materials. You can also find us over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We would be so appreciative for your support, but it is not mandatory. Absolutely not. We talk about His Dark Materials every other month for patrons in the $5 and up stranger tier. Uh, We will do some special episodes, talk about some special stuff. And hey, if you're into A Song of Ice and Fire, we are also doing a reread of the A Song of Ice and Fire series, point of view by point of view character. You can catch that there as well and every other other month. We do episodes on that for $5 patrons. And this 
month. Currently, we are doing our read-through of the Davos chapters, and our $5 and up episode will be about we're finally going to get to the Lycidae Spring. We've been, we keep thinking we're going to get there, but there's just a lot that happens in the Lycidae Spring. We're finally doing it. Yes, the Lycidae Spring is so detailed, but we're excited to get through it and get through some more of Fire and Blood. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I have been one of your hosts. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Oh, I'm Chloe. So sorry. Yeah. I was like, wow, should should I tell them who she is? Do they know? Do they know that she's Chloe? Well, now you do. Thanks so much. Well, and we had our other host, right? Wait, hold on. I want to just remind everyone that actually Lo has hosted an episode of Girls Gone Canon before with the co-host Tutiki. Mm. Yes. And Tutiki was uh, moral support during this episode. She unfortunately did not mm-hmm. have uh, like verbal uh, contributions to the episode but uh, she mm-hmm. cuddled my leg while I was talking to you you know that's sometimes how a girl's that's gone in an episode goes sometimes one of us is moral support and the other isn't I thought you were gonna say sometimes one of us cuddles the other's leg and the other does and, and I was like what <laughs> <laughs> like am I missing out on some leg cuddles what is this <laughs> did I misunderstand something (laughs) oh my god thank you for listening everyone we'll talk to you next week bye goodbye